Uh, I'm pretty so sure we just lost our recording. Yeah, we just lost that, yeah. All right, we're going to hang out until he comes back in. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, well, what, what do you want to bet his computer just died? Because uh, he was walking around with it and didn't plug it in. Oh, yeah. It's going to take him a few minutes then. I don't know. It depends. I'm going to send him a text right now. Hmm. Hey, douche nozzle. <laughs> Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to another fantastic episode of Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Beast. Lamode is our second... Fuck. I got to introduce myself. All right, five seconds. It's opposite day on... I know. Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode. And we are joined this week by two very special guests. We are joined by the Vaude villain. Hey, how's it going? And we are joined by Bradley Quizboy. Hello. Now, we have a very exciting episode in store for you, and the only thing I can say about it is watch your back. Banana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All I can say about it is, you know, ever since the Iron Man, everybody wants the robot heart. (laughs) (laughs) In today's episode, go ahead. Oh, yeah, so uh, we're going with Assassin Annie 911 in part two of our Brock block. Um, so uh, we had a really, like, because the more you love a character, the harder it is to pick an episode, I've noticed. Um, and so this is actually my episode that, uh, you know, we chose to dissect. And I went with Assassin Annie 911 because you get the beginning of Brock's career, right? You get a little bit of him being... Uh, you know, caretaker with the boys. And of course you get some of that like delicious, you know, Brock and uh, Molotov interplay um, as well as, you know, uh, really kind of getting to the crux of his morality. You know, uh, in the last episode, um, you know, we did the whole bit with uh, exploring the death vine and, you know, coming to the conclusion that Brock has validated himself as a killer, right? Like, that's just who he is. He is a tool. He is a uh, element of darkness that serves the light, right? Um, and in this episode, it's very much, you know, uh, where his morality is tested, um, you know, and kind of really rubs up against his beliefs. And we kind of get to see that conflict and where he falls on that. There is a whole lot to this episode 
And let's go ahead and begin with a little bit of background. This episode aired on July 9th, 2006. So here we are, almost 14 years later, and we are still getting some unique opportunities from this episode to explore some key relationships, key details, key motivations, and of course, the key to someone's heart. And we get this opportunity in this episode because not only do we get early Brock, we get the first appearance and the first meeting between Brock Sampson and a gentleman named Colonel Hunter Gathers. Well, and, you know, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I really love um, the idea of Hunter S. Thompson as a commissioned uh, officer in a shadow government organization. Like when he talks about the bastards, it really gives like, you know, a gravitas to it. Like there, I mean, it's still vague. It's still the, the vague they, but it's like, you know, the bastards really mean something now. Now it's the guild, you know, now it's Sphinx. So I had a very special relationship with this particular episode. And when it aired, it really cemented uh, this show's place in my heart. Um, and in fact, so when I was a younger man, 16 years old, I started working in bookstores uh, and I found a copy of the Hunter S. Thompson book, Confessions of a Political Junkie. And I remember thinking to myself how crazy it was that a guy this smart could be into politics. It seemed <laughs> so random and so weird. And then as I've gotten older, I understand just the the appeal of it because politics are a lot like sports teams you've got your people you've got your team that you're rooting for and they can make all the mistakes in the world but it doesn't stop them from being your team but the reason that hunter s thompson is so special to me is actually because of my my boy's uncle kyle who gave me a copy of fear and loathing in las vegas when i was in the sixth grade 11 years old and I read it, and it changed my life. I was like, yes, this is what I want to do for a living. So I went out and did it. I became a journalist, took a lot of fantastic drugs, and wrote some amazing stories. And You know, uh, that actually <laughs> uh, mimics a little bit of what Quizboy was telling me about their relationship with Venture Brothers. Uh, you know, highly inappropriate media exposed to them too early in life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this is a great opportunity for us to bounce over to Bradley Quizboy and the Vaudevillain and let them explain a little bit about how they came to Venture Brothers and what they're looking forward to about this episode. Uh, well, I guess I'll start us off. Uh, my name is Bradley Quizboy. I got into Venture Brothers way too young. Uh, I first started watching around the start of the second season with both my brothers uh, when I was 10 years old, which, again, is way too young to be watching something like Venture Brothers, good as it is. And Well, okay, and <laughs> question about that. As a 10-year-old... Did you get the Johnny Quest reference like out of the out of the game? Uh, kind of like I grew up with like obviously other old cartoons and stuff because my parents, my older brother, and everything. So I kind of knew what it was referencing, but I didn't really get a lot of it. I knew that there was a Johnny Quest character, and I know I knew that Rusty was like a, a retired, essentially boy adventure. But like that's pretty much it. Everything else was just completely new to me. Well, and all right. So uh, what was your initial impression as like 10 year old you? Because we talked about this earlier where, you know, uh, I'd been 
I'd watched the first run of Venture Brothers, but it didn't really hit me like a bus until Ice Station Impossible, right? So, like, you know, as a 10-year-old exposed to the show, when did you have that? Um, not when I was 10. I'll tell you that. Because <laughs> 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 Venture Brothers is something that I've come back to a lot over the years, like when I was like when I was 16 and then like 19 and then now when I'm like 23 and I really only started to get it like when I was 19 and like going back to it and like things started to click about like more of the themes of it and like just how characters were in general like I didn't remember Rusty being not to be rude but like so bad of a person when I was young (laughs) you go back to when you're older and you're like oh no Rusty's kind of really terrible like <laughs> oh dude yeah the the when i became a dad and watched ranger bros i'm like what <laughs> it's a totally different experience yeah yeah and in fact we, we spent three entire episodes talking about how bad he is yeah and that, <laughs> help things click again with the start of the podcast and everything can i what does that say about the show that it is so good that you can watch it for a decade without really getting it? <laughs> I mean, you know, we were in, in a bit of the pre-roll. We were talking about that. Um, Vaude Villain here actually runs the Venture Brothers fan group on uh, Facebook. Co, um, co. And- want to give credit to the actual? I am not the uh, the originator on that one. Um, credit is due elsewhere. Uh, I don't, I don't know if we want to name drop and everything on here. He is the admin on that one. You can use initials. Uh, well, and his name is initials. It's DJ. So uh, there you go. <laughs> okay. uh, he can stay covert on that one. Uh, don't want to take full credit for that one. I came to that about a year, year and a half ago. Um, he was looking for, it was just looking like the group was starting to get bigger and everything. And um, I definitely probably overstepped my bounds immediately and was just like, <laughs> hey, if you ever need any help, like we had gone back and forth chatting a little bit and I was all like, oh, admin, talk to this guy, try and get in, make this more part of your life. Um, so basically weaseled my way in there, which I mean, to you guys probably doesn't sound familiar at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, what was your question again? Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. We were talking about that in the pre-roll, like how you can watch Venture Brothers, yeah, and fifteen times you will miss a yeah, joke, definitely. but that one time you find it, and you know that you're always missing stuff, and that's yeah. why the rewatchability of the show is amazing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah. And it's a unifying thing on the internet, like it's yeah. a it's an internet miracle. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talk- like we were talking about before, uh, I have had consensuses on the internet uh, in this group uh, where. We're all getting along with the fact that uh, we have differences of who thinks uh, Scare Bears who, not to jump guns. Um, They have all sorts of debates on there where usually on any other fan group page you would see it would get out of hand and turn into name calling and all of that that we're all so used to on the internet. But with this one, uh, people stay, I don't want to jinx it here, but they stay fairly civil. Um, I've even had people come in at the end of a conversation come and be like, wow, this conversation happened on Facebook, people getting along. Uh, but uh you know with venture brother fans i guess we uh not to get snobby about ourselves but we bring a certain group um so yeah it's been a it's been a nice so yeah trying to uh get into any different parts of this kind of universe is uh something interesting to me at least for sure speaking of the group in and of itself i have been so thrilled with the comments and the feedback that we've been getting from our listeners and it's it's been super exciting to see not only that people are enjoying it around the world 
but that they are, you know, taking the time to engage. So I want to go ahead and encourage everyone who's listening. If you've got something you want to share with us, please do. You may end up on the, uh, on the pod here. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually a few things, uh, uh, when we get off here, trying to remember, talk about off air things from the group, actually, uh, discuss for future episodes. So, uh, actually, if you have any interesting venture brothers stuff and either reaching out, obviously to the podcast first, but if, uh, you're already a part of the group or want to reach out to the group and reach through there, uh, you might end up, uh, getting a hold of somebody on the show here. So, um, and let's not miss an opportunity for a shameless plug either. No, How can people definitely. find the group? Um, you want to go to, uh, this thing called facebook i believe uh you might know about it um and then from oh, there myspace it's a, it's like myspace friendster it's just a little bit more current um we're still <laughs> not, still not by much no no point. no we don't want to be on instagram or tweety bird or whatever the hell's going on past <laughs> there so uh stay away from all that uh no but it's a uh, bunch of other fans um a few thousand strong try and get stronger no not trying to shameless plug at all. Well, uh, and I mean, honestly, that's, that's kind of the whole point of the podcast here is yeah. like, I feel like the ben- Venture Brother fandom is really unique unto itself. And uh, again, I don't want to toot our own horn, but I feel like we have, you know, some of the best fans on the internet, you know, uh, we're smart, you know, not necessarily, I mean, I say that as we're, you know, intellectualizing Brock Samson, uh, but, you know, we're not, you know, overly snobbery about it there's a lot of like fun and, and tongue-in-cheek to it uh one of my favorite things about the venture brothers group and uh it's kind of a concept i'm parlaying over into another project here is you know uh arching levels in in current news like they'll post uh you know an article and they're like well what level of arch is this and it's just a brilliant way to kind of reframe things and i mean again it's a really clever crafty uh, and when I say crafty, I mean literally like arts and crafts band and like <laughs> it is amazing. I do want to interject on that note. That was actually the one thing we've had to kind of limit on the group because it was starting to become a little too frequent that they were getting reposted. So we've been having to make a, sometimes we do like a weekly post where you can put all the new ones uh, because it was just kind of flooding some people's feeds, I guess, with just uh, too many arching posts. So uh, yeah, that was when we actually got a little bit of a sticky situation with there a couple weeks, now yeah, a couple months back. Uh, but we handled that. So you know. <laughs> now, Vaude Villain, how did you come to the Venture Brothers? Um, honestly, I have a very similar but uh, sort of opposite story to Quiz Boy. I grew up. Um, I do have a half sibling, but we're a continent apart. So I did a lot of uh, late night TV watching by myself. Uh, when exactly I caught the Venture Brothers, I couldn't tell you. I caught the Beavis and Butthead run on the very first run as a child, and um, I'm a little younger than what I should be doing. Oh, there you go. That. So you caught Venture Brothers somewhere in between Beavis and Butthead and the scrambled dirty channels on the cable. <laughs> no, it wasn't scrambled. Uh, uh, e true, uh, not E true. It wasn't E true. It was uh, E wild with someone. I don't remember her name anymore. She wore a tank top and a bikini all the time. But yeah, no, that was basically where I caught Venture Brothers, was somewhere in between there. Um, about... Is that your Bobby St. Simone? Yeah, that's my yeah. Bobby St. Simone. <laughs> I can't remember her name, as you should, apparently. Um, Wasn't it Brooke? That's the one. I actually used to, uh, used to work with her. No way. Back in the uh, back in the day, I used to live in Los Angeles, and I worked for uh, a magazine, <laughs> at, at, a uh, and 
an art magazine. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> art in the <laughs> like interpretive uh, dance shots, kind of a thing. Um, th- th- there was dancing. <laughs> All right. Um, when he says art, he means it in like the um, Larry Flint interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at any rate, uh, really, really, really nice people. Uh, also learned that LA was not my bag, and I got the chance to. Uh, I actually shared an office with Fotech. He, uh, Fotech, the drum and bass guy, he uh, had moved to LA. And uh, I remember hearing his track, Nitin Ichi Ryu, playing really loud as a Porsche pulled into the parking lot. I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know you. I know who you are. Yeah. Um, it. With that yes. being said, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so yeah, I was somewhere catching it in there, and then honestly, like we said, uh, it takes a while for the Venture Brothers to truly sink in, no matter what age you catch it, because uh, it's one of those shows that just really grows on you the way it does, so I, w- I want to say I caught it probably around first or second, or first first run of reruns probably coming onto Adult Swim, um, but by the time I graduated out of high school in 06, it was a firmly planted thing, um, so, so somewhere in there it caught hold. Well, thank goodness that it did. And there's a lot to grab hold of in this episode. So let's go ahead and dive right in to parlay a scene that will take place later. Our episode opens 21 years ago as Samson, Brock Samson, walks into an office in what I can only assume. Well, let's save that for just a moment. So he walks into an office. There's a shadowy figure behind the desk. And he comes in. What do we see, Beast? Uh, you know, it's a pretty standard, you know, office. Uh, it looks pretty governmental. File cabinets, nondescript. American flags, lots of, you know, patriotism and, you know, personal accoutrement. Right. And uh, there is a gentleman uh, sitting across from the desk with, you know, uh, from Brock Samson, who is standing at attention, reporting for duty. Right. And this gentleman sitting across this uh, desk from him, uh, you know, he has these beautiful aviator sunglasses, a cigarette holder um, and like, uh, you know, kind of a, a cap style hat. Um, yeah, it's and like a ball, cap. Through, yeah. a ball cap. And, and he speaks through his teeth that are clutching the cigarette holder. Yeah. Constantly speaking through clenched teeth. And of course, he starts reading off some facts about Brock Sampson. Born Omaha, Nebraska to a single mother. He's got one brother. He's into motocross and what else? <laughs> He's half Swedish, quarter Polish, corner Winnebago. Now, let me talk about this joke for a second. Because I didn't realize it wasn't not a joke. <laughs> Winnebago's a tribe. Not the art. Well, I know that. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> first time, I, first time like, I saw that joke, I was are like, "Are you happy now?" <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not Obi Wan, brother. I, I can't be happy. <laughs> when I first caught this episode, uh, I knew that Winnebagos were named after a tribe, but that just didn't register. I didn't make the full connection. Like, I made a pit stop in the middle, and I'm like, "He's a big dude." Like, he could be part RV, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, of course, we get that background. And one of my favorite lines in this episode is right here at the beginning. 
he's lighting the file on fire. He's like, you're in the OSI now. Happy birthday, Frankenstein. (laughs) Uh, We also get the section where he asks him if he's ready for anything. Twice. (laughs) (laughs) And then he flicks out the baton. The little uh, slide-out baton just comes out of nowhere, and he's just got that in his hand for the bam, pow to the groin. <laughs> Are you ready for anything? Are you still ready? Wrong! <laughs> yep, gets him right there. Brock Samson is doubled over. And he's like, Don't, first Russell, don't trust anyone. Are you ready for mind blowing weirdness at every turn? And you're, you're, that is selling it short, as we will find out 21 years later. So, well, and this is very uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Like, you know, uh, we were talking about it some time back, but like, you know, our mutual favorite Hunter S. Thompson quote is, uh, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. That is, you know, so talking about like, the mind bending, like world of like espionage, you know, uh, that's definitely like right up his alley, especially in the super science universe. Um, I mean, hot dolphin. Of course, while he's explaining, he's just like cheap shotted Brock Samson. Lord, they're making it big these days. He just cheap shotted Brock Samson and is trying to teach him a lesson, then throws him a jetpack and walks to the opposite door, the door opposite his desk, the one that apparently Brock Samson just came in from. And the entire wall opens up and it's revealed that they are not in an office building, they're in the sky. And Hunter gathers proceeds to welcome Brock into the OSI and then take off into the sky. We both know where this is going. The credits, the intro, I'm sorry. And we get our standard Venture Brothers introduction and our next uh, scene. Quick, quick little note. Oh, I, did we miss something? No, it was actually one I caught from um, I, right before we uh, got on uh, the chat here and everything. Um, I did a quick run through on the... Um, Oh God! The entire word's going to escape me. Perfect on a pod. The internet? No, not the internet. Um, commentaries. There we go. On the commentaries, I was listening to the commentary tracks on it, and uh, they had said that they actually, right as they were having him jump out and go off in with a jetpack and everything, they wanted to do a shot from outside the building, and you actually got to see the um, the plane that they were on. I'm assuming it would have ended up looking a lot like the Avengers helicarrier. Uh, for what we end up seeing later on, because I thought it was funny they talked about they didn't have enough money, not enough funding, and then later on down the road, we do end up getting to see the outside of that helicarrier. Um, at least I we get a whole lot Baby of that. Girl. Yeah, we yeah. get a whole yeah. lot of that. So uh, I just thought it was interesting to see that they were talking about it way back when on the commentaries, and then uh, finally they got the time to do it later down there. But that was uh, something I thought was kind of cool from them, uh, the tracks there. One of the things that has always fascinated me is the and beast called it uh checks they didn't know they were going to cash they've been writing checks that know they were going to cash it's interesting to see how many checks they've written knowing they were going to cash it and of course as the audience without the commentary it's it's impossible for us to know because they handle weaving it in so well so instead of and while we're on the topic of commentary just a quick little little tangent on the tangent um I was getting uh, like cozied up for bed the other night and uh, we put on Venture Brothers with the commentary um, to pass out on. And it was tanks for nothing. 
because again this was like a possibility of doing a, a brock block episode on this one right um which ultimately i i did in you know in favor of assassinating 911 so i put on the commentary and the first thing doc hammer says is all right raise your hands for those at home and i can't see you but how many people just put on the commentary to go to sleep <laughs> I was like, well played. You're acutely aware of your audience, <laughs> sir. And they know us incredibly well don't, don't. because they open up the next scene with a lice comb running through Hank's hair. And who's holding it? But our favorite Swedish murder machine. And as it pans <laughs> back a little bit, we hear him giving instructions about the defense structures on the compound. And uh, Bradley Quizboy, can you give us some insight into uh, your experience of this scene? Uh, well, I'll say that it was really good to cut from uh, hunter-gatherers jumping out of the plane, or about to jump out of the plane anyway, after handing Brock a jetpack and everything. Two credits to future Brock, current Brock, just running a lice comb through a young boy's hair. It's, it's really good to go from that to the next. But uh, afterwards, he starts talking about uh, different defense mechanisms and such, mostly the panic room, I suppose, to Molotov, who's uh, just behind him leaning on his car. And uh... Well, and also, uh, why is he running? Like, okay, like, I, I have clones myself, um, so, um, and, and my clones are in school. Why are you doing a life check on homeschool? Well, to be fair, they do go out a lot on, you know, different <laughs> adventures and stuff, following around the world. <laughs> So, like, these aren't just, like, normal lice. Like, he's running, like, some sort of lead cone. <laughs> these could be radioactive lice. lice these kids are carrying. We don't know. And neither does Brock, which is always why it's safe to check. Yeah. Dude, worst version of Spider-Man <laughs> ever. <Right>. Bitten by <laughs> Bitten by a radioactive louse. <laughs> louse, man. You're just, like, laying in the grass. Like, this just feels good. I don't... I can't... <laughs> Maybe... Maybe that's how the tick got his powers. Zing. Interesting. And that's one of the things I loved about the tick was you never really knew. Um, it's definitely like, you know, you kind of get that uh, very much sensibility uh, brought over to Venture Brothers. You know, we talk about it a lot. Uh, and when we finally get to Orb, right? Like, really, the mystery is, is the thing. Once you solve the mystery, it's almost a little boring and, and mundane, right? Um, so that kind of uh, absurdity with like, you know, the tick is, is always like uh, ever present in Venture Brothers. I feel like we've had this conversation a lot lately about the journey, uh, especially last week's episode where we spent so much time talking about character growth and character development. And in this particular instance, we've seen a lot of character development. Here's a guy who was jumping out of a plane after getting cold cocked uh, with a jetpack following a guy who eventually will uh, become a, a, the second closest thing to a father figure he's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's running a comb, a lice comb, through a young boy's head before calling for Dean and explaining security detail. Now, why is he explaining the security detail of the compound to Molotov Cocktees? Uh, because... Well, he's been called out on a mission. He has indeed. And... The mission that he's going on, we don't know a whole lot about, and we will learn more shortly. Uh, and 
he's talking about being a guard. And it's obvious from the very beginning that Molotov does not approve of where he's at in his life. You know, she's like, oh, you're on protection detail. Protection from what? Uh, tummy aches and uh, bed bugs, <laughs> right? Well, you know, I think that this is a funny thing to bring up, uh, especially after the events of the Brisby episode, where she steals the Compando from Brisby because, like, she has to go help rescue the boys, right? Like, she has to. She knows exactly how crazy, like, you know, mannying these kids are. She does, you know, like to to say that, like, you know, this man is not living up to his potential. I feel like is a clear understatement. Well, and he tries to counter with that. He says something effective, you know, we get in some pretty hot situations here. At which point, Doc walks up with a pair of shirts and asks, which looks better, the velour or the Italian knit? You know, real hot and heavy situations. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, uh, I would have gone with the, uh, the velour. Right. <laughs> Me too. I, I have always wanted a blue, bright blue crushed velour suit i just uh, i'm confident it's good for any situation kind of like action adventure snuggles all right so a quick note on professor brock savage um although i am the aspiring supervillain, in his professional life professor savage is actually the one who dresses like a supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> like colors you know, uh, very sharp, well put together. Um, For a white but, guy, yeah, I like... wear a lot of purple. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, inside, somebody had it. Right. Um, you know, one of the things about uh, Molotov's response to this, when Doc walks up, <laughs> it, it, Brock feels, uh, oh, he, it, Brock, she feels like Brock has been a little disrespected. She turns to him and says, say the word, and, and he's dead. We could be in Monaco by midnight. Like, it's obvious that she is desperate to get him away from this life that she feels has trapped him in a station below where he deserves to be. Well, and really, like, uh, (laughs) on some level, I I love the mirror version of, like, uh, Casablanca. (laughs) Like, she's like, no, (laughs) I can can rescue you from this place. (laughs) (laughs) We'll always have Paris. Or was it the uh, the eighty eight Olympics? <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Um, now we also get Rusty asking what her relationship situation is. She is very—I uh, don't want to say scandalously dressed—but uh, there is a lot about her costume that didn't make her costume. And that, like big chunks of her front all the way down to her belly button are uh, are clearly exposed. And this is giving Doc ideas. And he asked Brock, did you have relations? When Brock responds, no, uh, he says, then Rusty calls dibs. Uh, like, first off, I love the fact that Doc has no awareness of what his league is. <laughs> Second... The fact that Brock Sampson has not landed that plane makes you think you can even step up to bat on that? Well, like, really? can we be honest, though? <laughs> isn't that 
the ideal situation when you have so much confidence in yourself that anything is good to go. I remember hearing, uh, I forget what movie it was, but it was a bunch of uh, baseball scouts. Oh, oh, I think it was Moneyball. And they're sitting there and they're looking at these players and they're looking at all these different things about them that they feel like are going to give them insight to how they're going to play baseball. Specifically stuff like, how hot is your girlfriend? (laughs) Right? Because the hotter your girlfriend, the more confidence you clearly have. Therefore, the better you're going to be at baseball. And if it, the whole point of the movie Moneyball is to say, you know, to call BS on that. But, you know, it's one of those things. It was like, okay, don't you aspire to have the confidence of a man who thinks he can play baseball? <laughs> and Rusty clearly does. Yeah, I mean, he's very... Uh you know, just blind to the idea. And that's something we talked about in, uh, you know, the psychosis of Runchy, Rusty Venture series. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like he, this weird relationship with the idea of sex, right? So he's very much like, yeah, let's go ahead and get on the match.com. But anyway, it's a little, uh, little Caligula cool. Rusty showing back up again. That's uh, shining through hard in that scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rusty can land this yep. plane. <laughs> Rusty had to put his shirts away. Only this and nothing more. <laughs> well, right as all that's going on, something happens to distract all of their attentions away from flights to Monaco or what shirt to pick. And that is when manacondas pop out of the Jets' landing gear. <laughs> Well, and uh, in terms of pun names, uh, <laughs> this is one of the best ones. <laughs> it, it gets even better at the end, but we'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, can you explain what's happening as the manaconda pops out? Who starts dealing with it? Well, and that's when, you know, uh, Molotov hops in and kind of steps into the role Brock has assigned her as temporary guardian. And he even had that moment where Doc's like, are you going to handle it? Like, whoa, whoa, no. Just take a step back, let her handle mm-hmm. And, you know, Doc even gets a little professional with it. He's like, all right, you know, she's got the moves, but can she seal the deal? At which point she slices Anaconda in half. And then, like, these little Anaconda babies come oozing out of the bottom half. At which point Dean's like, whoa, man. <laughs> whoa, Anaconda. <laughs> That, like, let's take the manaconda upon one step further. Let's be let, let's be gender gender appropriate, I guess, in this regard. <laughs> it's a woman anaconda. Well, I mean, the thing, the misnomer here is that uh, manacondas are actually asexual, and they mate with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they spore, or is it parthenogenesis? Uh, mostly, it's uh, match.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, match.com. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that, uh, that we see here, she manages to deal with the problem. Brock rolls out, and she says that she's going to do Brock a favor. She lets Doc know exactly what she thinks of him. He is not worthy to lick Brock's uh, boot. And she's going to do him a favor. Oh, well, before what do you we got get to that us? part, 
as soon as Brock is in the car and he leaves, Rusty turns to Molotov and says, uh, well, do you want me to ready the foldout in my dad's old study? Would you, prefer, <laughs> would you be more comfortable in the master suite? It's like, the instant Brock is gone, he's <laughs> right on her. He's already moving in for the kill, trying to <laughs> land that plane. <laughs> and her response is like a thousand yeah. times appropriate. Like that sweet, like, you know, KGB like maneuver where they grab you in between the lip and <laughs> yeah, the, the jaw. <laughs> yeah. And like basically take command of your whole body by your jaw. <laughs> like, yeah, and, uh, it was great. She did not take his shit once. It is the facial, maxillofacial version of the pinky grab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Molotov is going to do him a favor by training the Venture boys and Doc Venture in self-defense tactics so that they no longer need a babysitter. Now, where is Brock the next time we see him? He is sitting in a limousine being talked to by a very secret service looking gentleman in glasses, dark suit, and being handed the new field kit. What's his response to the field kit as he goes through it? Oh, man. This is, okay, and this, in my opinion, is really where you can get a sense of, like, Brock in the now. Um, I love that, like, he's very, uh, like, too cool for school with all the gadgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, in the world of espionage, he's like, no, those are for pansies. I've got my field kit right here. Yeah. You know, and I love asking the questions about it. He was like, oh, yeah, a pack of smokes. Like, does this do anything stupid? <laughs> Guess what it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that guy is so oh. eager. He's like, oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got to show off the shiny new toys, and uh, Brock is not interested. All he wants is a pack of smokes, well, and he can't even do those right. Well, and it definitely shows up later um, in All That and Gargantua too. It's like never play roulette wheel. <laughs> like never play roulette. Like it's all spies. Like, and the guy walks up. He's like, you know, I you ordered I ordered it shake. Yeah, no, you all ordered it the same way. <laughs> right. What is that? Uh, that Rick and Morty episode? Oh, uh, with World Ender. Uh, what's the name of the the super team? Uh, oh, God bless. Uh, so at any rate, there Rick accidentally oh, kills World Ender. What's that? one with christian slater yeah so rick accidentally kills you know like gets drunk blacks out kills world ender and then traps the team so that they have to do the thing and it's like okay one of you which one of you has this tragic backstory and they all have the exact same tragic backstory (laughs) it's kind of the same thing with the spies no no you've all got the same tragic backstory you all order your drink the same way you're all, you've all got the same lifestyle obsession that you're trying to live professionally. Now, I mean, really, uh, like, I've always wanted to see that version of it because we've seen the reformed boy adventurers, uh, like, you know, support group. We've seen the, uh, my primary arch diet support group. <laughs> like, OSI, like, you know, their super science did some shit to me. Like, you see hatred there with his boobs. You know, you got Brock there with the chest plate. Like, you can't see the invisible guy that they had to hit with paintball guns, but he's there. <laughs> right. like, 
So my the most surprising part about this particular scene is after he's offering Brock a pin. You never know when you need a pin, or is it? Uh, they wrap up the briefing, at which point he says that Officer Swallows will give him the rest of the information, opens up the door of a moving car, and bails. Then the car careens off of a cliff. The limo careens off of a cliff, lands in the water, and converts into a submarine? Yeah, like some sort of... Uh you know, submersible, you know, vehicle that, you know, was made to, to dock with the sub. Um, it's very, uh, I guess, the claw from Inspector <laughs> Dr. Claw. <laughs> Dr. Claw, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, and then we get a flashback as we splash down. So we call it a splashback. As we see Brock training with Colonel Gathers in a pool. And it starts off pretty innocuously like most things and like almost every scene in this episode starts off so innocuously and then takes a crazy twist because we open up on this pool and it's obviously you got to hold your breath longer this that and the other let's see if you can really train and colonel gathers starts throwing grenades into the pool that brock is in brock starts swimming away and we back we see we back up we see these explosions taking place and then brock you know, you see blood appear on the water. These two bodies appear, and then who bursts from the water but Brock Sampson with a hammerhead shark clutched in his hands. <laughs> like, we see the hammerhead come out. We see the pool of blood. We assume Brock's been eviscerated, although we know he hasn't. And then we see the bodies. Then Brock comes bursting out of the water, and what does Hunter Gather say to Brock at that moment? Well, of course, you know, he comes rocketing out and he's smashing the the hammerhead shark with one of the uh, the scuba tanks. Right. Um, and really just giving that thing the business like, uh, you know, Brock accidentally killed a guy in college. But this is almost like the first time he's been allowed to go off the chain. Like, you know, this is a safe, this is your safe space, bro. <laughs> your safe space is a pool where guys are trying to kill you. There's a hammerhead shark and a dude up top, your teacher is throwing grenades at you. Yeah. And the whole time, like, I mean, he, he's Hunter S. Thompson or Hunter, Hunter Gathers is the most brutal, like life coach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's throwing the grenades in for motivation, but at the same time he comes like, he's like, yes, do it do it and he comes like you know, the shark was like yes son you've done it like you know just cheering him on proud papa moment and um this particular moment on. is where brock becomes ready to enter the field like we've already seen two key moments in brock's life we've seen the moment that he meets uh, a man who will become like a father figure to him and we've seen the moment that this father figure tells him that he's ready and it actually got me thinking like have you ever had anyone in your life who acted as like a surrogate father figure? I'll go ahead and extend this out. You know, obviously, you know, uh, Bradley and uh, uh, Quizboy and uh, Vaude Villain. Feel free to jump in on this as well. Um, I'd say, yeah, one of my current friends who's only a little bit older than me. But, you know, I look up to him a lot for like a lot and I go to him for advice and such. So I do kind of consider him like kind of a dad figure and he takes it pretty well. 
Although we haven't gotten to the step of like him exactly. throwing grenades at me in a pool and me trying to like wrestle a shark or anything, but you know. Well, he obviously doesn't um, feel like you're ready. Then. <laughs> Even your father figure, if he's not throwing grenades at you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it up at Thanksgiving. I'll bring the flamethrower. No, uh, one of the things I really enjoy um, is Fight Club. And uh, Fight Club 2 um, was, you know, done by the, the same gentleman who wrote the book and, you know, really endorsed the movie. And it's expounds on that concept. And one of the things they talk about is the second father theory, where like, uh, you know, young men are, you know, essentially going out and uh, once they're ready to move off in life, they naturally find themselves a second father, a drill sergeant, a coach, uh, a priest, you know, like spiritual leader of some sort, right? And, uh, you know, they tie it all into to Moses and this grand, you know, motif and this, that, or the other, but I thought it was a really interesting social theory. And, and Brock is definitely like um, uh, a very, like a case study in that, you know, um, he's definitely out of his element for the first time in his life. You get the impression that like, you know, uh, high school went pretty well for him. College was going great up until he murdered that dude. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, you know, here he is like, you know, his life's off the rail. And then he meets this guy who, uh, you know, is pretty much like, I mean, Hunter's not a huge dude, but somehow, you know, he is just as like visceral and virile as Brock Sampson. He is, you know, so he's kind of, he's met his like, you know, uh, his spiritual match, his, his senpai. Yeah. He's like, you know, I, I understand this man's energy and I wish to recreate the customado to Sampson's Mike Tyson. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> He's the one who carves him into, uh, what is it, who stomps on him hard enough to uh, make him something suitable to have dinner with. Right. And, you know, kind of tying it into something that will come up later on in the episode, uh, you know, he's very much like uh, Pai Mei to Beatrix Kiddo in Kill Bill. <laughs> right. You are not worthy of my time, but I will make sure you are by the end of it. Oh, and uh, fun fact, there is, and I mean, I know it's not really going to go anywhere, but in the world of, like, Snyder Cut, who the fuck really knows, um, there is a petition to get Brock in, like, DLC for Mortal Kombat 11. Whoa! <laughs> I'm... <laughs> That's everything I ever wanted out of this show. What, what would his killing move be? Like, let's, like, is this killing move? Because, you know, they've got all kinds of weird stuff. Like, I like, uh, like the Mortal Kombat series. I actually really enjoy the He's driving Justice 2 thing. Yeah, is the, is the killing move, uh, like, Adrian? Or is it like he pulls a hammerhead shark out and starts beating you with a hammerhead shark? Where did he even get oh, dude, a shark he pulls out a lawnmower. <laughs> he pulls out a lawnmower and presses you. Up against... <laughs> I mean, uh, in a world where you have the Injustice games, right, and Joker can pull out these props and mm -hmm. stuff, I mean, Brock's an actual cartoon character. Like, his physics are even more, you know, kind of willy-nilly. It's going right? to have to be the knife and Adrian. Like, if you've seen any of the Injustice, like, uh, super move scenes, you can, add, I mean, Batman's got the Batwing that comes in. You know, you like you could absolutely do Brock stabbing him with a knife a whole bunch and then like popping out, hopping into Adrian, running over you a few <laughs> times, dragging you behind the car and then throwing a lit cigarette onto you as you burst into flames. 
and then peeing and then on pee you, on so you then you can't so resurrect. Can't resurrect. <laughs> you have to desecrate the body. Uh, I think we just solved Nether Realms' problem. So uh, you, you, you're welcome, guys. Please feel free to uh, make the Brock Samson murder death kill of our dreams. I've got one. And uh, if you guys follow through on that, you can just pay out any royalty. Right. What, what uh, just on? another one to add onto the list for him and uh, more stuff for us to get paid for in the long run. Uh, I just like the idea of, you know, because it's right when uh, usually you've got the other person beaten down, they're about to die and everything that you get to do your really cool kill move. Uh, they think that they're sneaking off, you know, does this little cutscene sneak off into uh, Adrian. They think they're driving off, but they just drive into Brock, who does that nice, sweet, through the hood, through the windshield, through the driver's seat, <laughs> and you just follow Brock, and you just drive off, and it's just got you win, and they're crushed dead behind you in the driver's seat. Got them a few, got them a go. few options, you know. <laughs> oh, that was just well, that was such a wonderful Brock moment when, like, you know, Myra's gun in the car behind him, he's doing something vaguely Karate Kid esque, <laughs> and then you like see him yep. smash. And then the joke that before is like, I feel like Catherine the Great. <laughs> but I just have the Joker saying, I feel like Catherine the Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we're gonna have to rename him Philip. <laughs> oh, is, it, it, uh. is that too etymological? I was gonna say like etymology joke. I mean. If there are any like master's programs people or like folks working like at the the Oxford uh, you know offices, they will love that job. Right. Well, I have uh, I have a deep deep love for the OED, and in fact, uh, luckily my wife does not listen to this podcast. But uh, one of the gifts I have been saving in my back pocket, it may even be for our twentieth anniversary, is I'm going to buy her a brand new copy of the OED and the requisite stand to put it on. Uh, we couldn't do it before now because uh, my kids are destructive heathens and agents of chaos and anything nice that I got for her would be destroyed almost immediately. But uh, in a few years, my kids will be a little bit older and we might be able to have nice things. So I have been saving that in my back pocket because my wife is a huge uh, fan of language in general. Uh, we have bonded many, many nights over the etymology and structure of words, but it has a dark side. The sword cuts both ways because the second biggest argument we've ever had, ever in the entire history of our relationship, has been over comma usage. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are word Like, it's, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, you're totally going to get the business, man. Like you're going to give her that dictionary and then the lights are going to dim <laughs> and rose petals are going to come everywhere. Like, yeah, no, that's a pretty solid See, it, If I do this right, then she'll walk into the home. It'll be completely cleaned and spotless. I'll have a fire going rose petals strewn from the front door into the back. She'll walk in and I'll have some lighting set up because I have all the production tools. So I'll have some lighting set up, maybe some up lights around the room, a couple of spots, maybe do some texture lighting on the walls. And uh, and the OED opened up to the page on Intercourse. Yeah, right. No, no, no. Coitus. Because that's the right. No, nah, honey, I put some tabs on certain words. Let's start this evening together. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, we'll, we'll start off light. You know, we'll look and we'll start off with foreplay. Ooh, what's the etymology of this one? Then we'll move to the etymology of outer course. Oh, yeah, girl. <laughs> you know, I keep looking for a clear definition of third base, but I... <laughs> OED really needs to get on what that. What base is the Rusty Venture? Oh, I mean, it depends. Where are you getting the date from? Uh, I, I don't know. Is the Rusty Venture, like shortstop or is the rusty venture back in the dugout <laughs> uh, i like the rusty venture back in the dugout that that seems like a very appropriate place where rusty ventures <laughs> i cannot wait for operation prom um so uh, we have gotten a little uh, a little distracted um we are now back with brock samson getting briefed and he's getting briefed in the sub and there's a guy who's giving him the briefing who is equal parts special agent and maitre d asking him how the lobster was <laughs> and it, like uh captain swallow yep. i think his yeah. name. um which uh obviously they are very much on like the gay navy joke um that is kind of a a reoccurring thing is like you know the underlying latent homosexuality of like all the way naval life oh sorry um you know obviously you know holy diver and then to shore leave right um and you know holy diver he knows captain swallows like in the biblical sense you know, i who knows i don't even know if that's his type but that's one thing i have figured out about the ventureverse is like the like queer community in the ventureverse is really tight knit. Like, think about that for a second. You know, uh, the alchemist and shore leave have their like on again, off again, memory wipe tryst. But then in the middle of the rusty venture conversation, they straight up just call Colonel gentlemen. They're like, Oh, you know, this is, this is a guy that knows. <laughs> well, and he clearly has seen a lot. Oh, like, we can't go into that. Like, we really can't because it's too delicious. Save it. Like, Save it. Operation Prom, it, like, that's going to be a very special episode of Conjectural Technologies. Like, we're not even, like, I don't even care how long that one goes. We're blowing the hinges off Are the door. Are we going to do a, a Like, a we're doing hour. the, like, six-hour dissection. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how about, we're making Twin Peaks videos over here. How much time, yeah, right? How much time am I going to spend on it? I don't know. How long was Twin Peaks? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and for the listeners, uh, you will notice a graduating obsession of mine with Twin Peaks. I'm, I'm in a bit of a research hole. I'm going to talk about it a lot. Sorry, not so sorry. So I asked him earlier, I asked Beast earlier, you know, if he's like, if he'd spent 10 hours watching Twin Peaks videos over the past two days, he was like, no, it was 12. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not 10 hours. That's silly. It was 12. Oh, and that's to say nothing of the text I sent earlier. Right. <laughs> like, I had this crazy epiphany watching it. Like, YouTube video changed my life. I don't know how to feel about that. Right. I mean, I guess that's just who I am well, now. Well, Pornhub will do that. <laughs> <laughs> I something about myself today. What was that Pete just Holmes Just like Warriana taught something about Brock. What was that Pete Holmes sketch where he's like, uh, you, you got to be careful what porn you watch? Because you could accidentally catch a video of a Japanese like news announcer, and then all of a sudden a bunch of naked guys walk out with hairless cats, and by the end of it, you're like, "No, this is me now." So now we're at the scene where Brock is finally getting briefed by Captain Swallows, and 
the first question out of his mouth, not in, is where, or I'm sorry, how was the lobster? This is where we get the opportunity to see a Brock that we don't normally see. This is dilettante Brock. This is sophisticated, suave, more 007-ish Brock. This is the Brock who can tell if it's a wine from 50 years ago versus a wine from 15 years ago, uh, which is not a skill set we've seen Brock really exhibit before. Well, and what I love about this, uh, this is Brock having a little bit of a vacation. Like, let's be honest. I mean, you know, this is emotionally tough for him. I get that. But, you know, he very much is uh, having a good time because, I mean, he even makes the joke about running outside. He's like, are you going to change? You know, the walking eye thing, right? He's like, uh, you know, I guess I could go get those things off. Are you going to change? He's like, no, I, 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 I love killing dudes in a tux. It makes me feel like James Bond. <laughs> right. You know, he's eating good. You know, he's obviously enjoying good company. You know, he gets to, you know, have a little bit of tuxedo time. Uh, you know, boys can play dress up, too. Don't put your heteronormative stereotypes on me, man. I don't know that I'm the guy to chat to about reinforcing stereotypes. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do my best. You know, uh, should you really be wearing a hat? Well, indoors? and I love the... the... <laughs> <laughs> it's because my headset hurts. Um, you're wearing a hat indoors. <laughs> I, I am, I am. My favorite part about Hank giving that line is, like, he's dressed from, like, you know, one of the, the guys from Duran Duran. In like the white suit and the shirt, like he's dressing up as like an '80s new wave bass player. Man, let, let's be honest though, isn't that the apotheosis of cool? Uh, as somebody like, I mean, I'm I'm on that cusp. Like, I can't really claim '80s kid. I, I claim more '90s kid, but I get that because that is totally where I had my basis of cool. That's where you figured out just how much you love pockets. Yeah, right. It's the reason, like, I grew up and listened to Nine Inch Nails and wore lipstick for a week, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> See, you, you don't have the stick to it of this you need. Maybe you need to watch uh, a few more episodes of uh, Rusty Venture and uh, Dr. Killinger. That'll help no, you I, was, uh, I was accused of being too happy-go-lucky to be a goth. <laughs> that, true story. <laughs> who accused you of this? Was it the same girl who chose well, uh, you? <laughs> How did she uh, hurt you? So, all right. Uh, now that he's, you know, in his tux, he's on his vacation, he's feeling good. Uh, he's got his, his, you know, he got his belly full, right? Um, so he launches out of the torpedo, and then apparently the only reason for this tuxedo to exist was to be, like, some sort of dual flotation, like, single-use boat device. <laughs> Um, yeah, he doesn't. It's wear really it too cartoony. Long after this, does he? Well, I mean, why would he? No, uh, apparently uh, yeah. the the ice the ice skating rink was closed. Who is it that's gone back to her own people? It's not Mary Lou Redding. Oh, oh it's actually uh, from Raleigh. Is it Chrissy Yamaguchi? It's I think Dorothy Hamill. Dorothy Hamill. Yeah, Dorothy Hamill has gone back to her people. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty solid code word. Those words I, I don't think have ever been uttered by a human being on earth before uh it, it's one of those situations where like that's really good spycraft where no one can accidentally utter the code word like you don't want your code word to be have you seen my dog right you don't want the code word to be i just farted well and this is something they have fun with right because it comes back around later on in the park scene where osi and uh you know uh 
the guild are having kind of like the Cold War style like park meetings like my dogs are bar- no we're doing the other one <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know who you are all right like everybody we we know who we are <laughs> um, no I mean uh, that, that's one of the better running you know subtle jokes throughout the show so when Brock comes to shore he is visited by an apparition of loveliness in an Ursula Anders uh, uh, bikini from the old Bond film and this woman comes waltzing out of the ocean they get their code words out of the way and they realize they've got some time before the uh, before they need to assault where they need to go actually real quick there was one little scene we had right in between there. Uh, this was when we had Orpheus and uh, Molotov dealing with the Apache situation. Um, it does kind of cut real quick here to um, sort of the resolution of that phone call earlier when uh, you know you just find the necromancer in the wing. Uh, we see that all kind of actually kind of tail out real quick here first. That's uh, right. Mal calls to uh, find out how Brock's doing. And uh, Brock, of course, is uh, doing his thing, and Hank and Dean are training. And uh, is, it, is it this where we get the training sequence? Um, it was the training sequence, I want to say, that actually led right up to this. Uh, it was a stab in the foot, end of the scene there, with uh, everybody sort of fainted on the floor pretty much. Um, and then we had Brock falling out of the uh, sky in his um, flotation suit, cigarette lit, and uh, actually pretty kind of cool, almost uh, Catwoman-style goggle glasses. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's talk about cigarette lit while falling, like free-falling through the, the sky. Like, that's <laughs> and drags as he lands to make sure that we're still good here. Like, that's what the cube basically hit the go button and then jet off towards the island was, uh, yep, cigarette's intact. I don't got to relight one before we move. So (laughs) now you've got me having to look up what terminal velocity for a human being is. Uh, With air resistance acting on an object that has been dropped, the object will eventually reach a terminal velocity, which is 53 meters per second, or 122 miles per hour for a human skydiver. Uh, Can I just point out how strong his lips are? (laughs) What brand of cigarettes is he smoking? So did Hunter then graduate to the cigarette holder after he retired from field work? Was that his official uh, retirement move? Because you know, maybe. You can't, yeah, you can't drop out of an airplane with that thing. It's gonna go. The holder's gonna go. That's a little. He's already thing. jumped out of an airplane with one in. He did oh, at the beginning of the episode. He's Hunter. He's badass. What are you gonna do? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know. If I had to guess what brand he was smoking, Geronimo's. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, was there is actually a, a, a venture cigarette brand that pops up uh, an episode pops up where it's referencing um, the Rusty Venture Show sponsored by Venture Rex Cigarettes. <laughs> Brought to you by smoking. <laughs> yeah, Venture Rex Cigarettes. Um, and I'm going to be honest, like uh, that's one of my small like uh, fetishes in life. Like, I totally have an Etsy board set up for, like, old 50 cigarettes ads. <laughs> right. Uh, different movies over the years. Actually, usually it ends up being directors. Uh, I, I'm going to say different directors and only come up with two examples. But um, 
Kevin Smith in his movies has his own cigarettes in all of the stores, and it's like nails or something like that. Often nails. There you go. And then um, Tarantino's got his own. It's something with an apple. I'm going to forget it now, of course. But uh, it's like Red apple. Apple. Red apple cigarettes, yeah. I always like that little touch of just... Um, Consistency. Yeah, it's a touch of consistency. It's real nice when it runs through something like that. Don't you like promotional tie-ins that aren't actual products? Yep, because when you finally do do them, they end up... Um, well, did you hear the bit about in L.A. with the, not to completely sidetrack us here, but with the bit in L.A. with him doing the movie uh, movie meals through um, Dine and Dash or one of, the, uh, one of the app things. Apparently they had like 2,000 in supply. It was right still in, well, they're still in the middle of it all. Um, but they put it up and within like an hour they had sold out all of them. He's now planning to try and do them across the country because you make that tie-in promotional stuff and people want to keep it for the box. You don't think a uh, Venture cigarette pack would be sitting on my uh, coffee table or somewhere in the house if they made one of those? <laughs> it would oh, be my cell phone case. Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, no, like, it, it, like if I'm being honest with you, that's one of the things I love about like you know the this day and age of promotional marketing. Uh, I saw the movies that popped up right. Um, they had like uh, the cafe from Friends. Like I'm not even a huge Friends fan, but like I thought it was neat that they had the coffee shop. Gilmore Girls did the same thing. Like, they had pop-up Lukes all over the place and stuff. Yep. Um, no, I mean, I really enjoy the meta construct. I mean, that, that's why I named the podcast Conjectural Technologies. Like, you know, I fantasize about having, like, a very mundane place in a very magical world. <laughs> and that mundane place could be a camper parked on a back lot in the middle of the desert. Next to a prayer shack. Next to a prayer shack. And nightingales. So... Uh, we've had Maul and Brock having this conversation. She's giving some training to Hank and Dean. And her training is in an, in an attempt to free Brock Sampson from having to babysit this family. Again, she does not respect what he's doing at all. She thinks it is beneath him. And she gets Dean to punch Hank, which knocks Hank backwards. Hank falls on the floor. And Dean is victorious. What is it that he yells? Who the master? Show enough. Um, and then, also, uh, and going back, and I did have a chance to rewatch that episode. That is very much uh, one thing in common. Like, so they have the Karate Kid uh, reference here with the the Cobra Kai, and I love that. Like Hank's wearing it because he pulls the dirty move, right? He doesn't sweep the leg; he stabs the foot. <laughs> no, yeah, right. <laughs> but then, like, no uh, going back to the, uh, you know. Was it uh, the Last Dragon reference? And that's one of my favorite, like you know, just obscure kung fu movies produced by Quincy Jones, and like has one of the. <laughs> it's one of those like because it was a music producer, uh, he very much had like a very strong one band musical act like present throughout the thing, um, band called The Barge. Uh, <laughs> Professor Savage, do you? know what the like the the debarge single is because i i can hear it in my head but i don't remember it my favorite debarge single is not from this movie it is from short circuit so let me look it up real fast <laughs> <laughs> that is not what i expected you to say well dude like do you remember the movie short circuit yes uh, mm -hmm. no it's not that short circuit is like something I didn't expect you to know is like, okay, I, I, I just I don't remember this thing. Movie tie -in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dude, You're the like, well, and th there was more than one? 
Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. Like, so a lot of people are inclined to forget this, but DeBarge was the hotness in the mid eighties. Like they were cranking out hits. Like there's a reason they were showing up. They were almost like, uh, uh, the fallout boy of, uh, of pop during that time period, you know, like every movie that came out, you, you know, you, you had to have your DeBarge single cause they had nailed that like eighties pop sound. Like it was soulful. It was fun. It was in a lot of ways, the same thing that Whitney Houston was doing. Right. Um, cause a lot of Whitney Houston's earliest hits, like she started off, you know, with these really like soulful, hits geared toward a black audience, but then she started going That's an going odd pop. way to describe cocaine. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> then when she started to go pop, and DeBarge kind of had a similar trajectory, and DeBarge was just like, we can absolutely do this, but they were taken seriously enough as musicians so that guys like Quincy Jones were bringing them in on their projects. So, I mean, were they, were they a Motown act? DeBarge? Yeah. Uh, I'll have to look that up. I was actually going to try and find the soundtrack here real fast. Whoa! Th- that's Rhythm what of Rhythm the of the Night. Night was? Yes, bam. Like, that's, no that's what I was looking way. for. Like, I literally just remembered it. Wow. Yeah, and this movie's really... That just blew like, my mind. Yeah, Holy it, it's, crap. I, guys, I can't recommend, like, if if you like movies that are campy, but also like fun and sad. I mean, this is very much like the you know typical '80s movie. Like this is just as much '80s as Ferris Bueller or Real Genius. Um, yeah, it, it, it's really like super super underrated. Do you know um, who else is on this soundtrack? I don't. But do you know who the? Uh, this is my favorite part. Do you know who the main protagonist's name? Uh, Bruce no. Leroy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Do you like? Remember? I can immediately. Well, I can immediately see why it apply, like appeals to these guys. Like, it takes place in New York. It's got like you know, uh, great poppy soundtrack. You know, the movie doesn't take itself too too seriously, and there are pun names. Right. Also on this soundtrack, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Rockwell. And Willie Hutch. Willie Hutch is on there twice, as well as DeBarge. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, uh, so Beast and I used to work at a hookah lounge fire spinning cafe uh, a long time ago called the uh, Juggling Gypsy. And, is this going to be a joke of places you two have worked together that are equally insane and then more insane after that? <laughs> <laughs> First we had DJs, and now we've got this. Where I mean, I don't even want to guess where we're going next. <laughs> so, uh, w- without get- so this is not even the weirdest place we've ever worked together. The weirdest I- place I think we ever worked together was in the back of a truck during the movie Half-Baked. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Cuban B. Cuban B. <laughs> um, suffice to say, there was a movie that they would show. It was like Kung Fu Beer Night. And this is like, uh, this is forever ago. Like Kung Fu Dollar Beer Night. And essentially what it was, was showing this movie that was looking at Bruce Lai and Dragon Lee. And like <laughs> Bruce Leroy, I think it was a, was an unforgivable uh, omission from that film. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, and uh, the bad guy of the film, and he's one of my favorite, I mean, I'll say he's one of my favorite 80s villains, man. Um, he's called the Shogun of Harlem. Mm-hmm. I mean, how badass does that sound? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, and his name I, is Show Enough. Show Enough, yeah. Yeah, it's played uh, by yeah, Julius J. Carey third. It's even a good name. It, oh, dude, and um, Julius J. Carey third is actually also a legend in black exploitation film. Um, and the only reason I really understand anything about that is uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, like he was, he was my introduction into that, like with Foxy Brown and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, uh, definitely. Like I, I can't recommend this enough, but we've talked about it way too much. Right. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, we have missed our lead up to the tail end of Maul's conversation which is, yeah, things are going well. Oh, sorry, uh, right now, Dean uh, has punched Hank, has yelled, show enough, who the master, and uh, Hank then stabs Dean in the foot with a pencil. Dean has blood spurting out of his foot and then falls over. Hank's like, oh, no, I killed him. Molotov's like, yet, sudden drop in blood pressure. He's just passed out. And that, that's when, of course, she starts yelling at him, why haven't you pinned him already? Like, that is some serious training right there. Like, you do, like, what is beyond Cobra Kai? Like, at that point, are you just yelling, Cobra! So, during the training session, uh, I actually think she says something at, at some point about the, the Spetsnaz training. And I'm not actually terribly familiar with that. Like, uh, you and I have had some weird conversations in general. Um, and more so about, like, martial arts from other countries like you're a big fan of savat right um and then uh yeah uh and then i want to say like spetsnaz training is actually based a lot around sambo which is a like russian like grappling art like they use it to wrestle bears for some shit like for vodka (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to imagine what russian bear wrestling looks like and something tells me the internet already answers this for me <laughs> like that is actually one of the things i really loved about uh siat um so i knew this guy named jeff uh jeff mountjoy one of the most awesome people i've ever met in my life uh he was the tech theater assistant director um and went on to work for a bunch of productions i mean he was just incredibly handy super kind just amazing. So he practiced Siat. And one of the cool things about it, I was trying to understand what it was about this martial art. And he's like, all right, so you, you've taken karate, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know, you got your katas, right? And you're like, okay, uh, take on, you know, two guys with hands and then one guy with a knife or two guys with a knife, one guy with a sword. Um, you know, or when you get real advanced, it's okay, take on a guy with a gun. In Siat, it's guy with a knife, guy with a gun, guy with a machete, tiger. there comes that moment where it's like wait wait you're including this as part of your standard training what what happens when you get to the advanced levels i'm being honest with you this is probably like something that uh you know the tiger king should have been learning (laughs) (laughs) that guy still have his arm Dude, right? Like, you should have been training his employees. Like, all right, so you pull your gun, but you, you know, you shoot the Carol Baskin. You fight you the know tiger. why that guy survived the production? Because the what? tiger realized he was unarmed. 
Too soon. Uh, okay. Uh, it might be in bad taste. Speaking of bad taste... Uh, well, Molotov, it wasn't in bad taste. I think he finished the arm. Like, he, he okay. ate the whole thing. Molotov is uh, feeling like part of her mission is in bad taste because while the training is going well, uh, this is where we get another one of these great moments where the scene takes a dramatic left turn uh, where she's yelling at Brock because he didn't tell her that the compound is built on top of an Indian burial ground. And we have uh, Indian warriors, Native American warriors, riding in the background, ghosts, apparitions, who, riding right through the inside of the hangar. And, of course, how does Brock take this? Well, being uh, that quarter Winnebago, um, he might be happy. It could be a family reunion for him. Um, <laughs> 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 say hi to the grandpappy and uh, grandmammy for me. But, um, uh, no, he's just, uh, yeah, he just rolls it off as nonchalant as uh, can be and just, uh, oh, you know, there's a necromancer, and I want to say it was the East Wing, just... Uh, you know, call him up, bring him on, and he calls him up like it's absolutely nothing. Um, every day, you know, venture compound stuff, you got to pull the necromancer in. Oh, dude, yeah, I love it. He's like, oh, I forgot. Like, oh, is it that time? Is it the anniversary already? Uh. Someone, someone mentions a leap year day being uh, the yeah, issue. That's, yeah, that's the Orpheus. He's like, oh, I forgot <laughs> it was a leap year. So, uh, that's, Maul obviously has a lot on her plate. She's dealing with uh, ghost invasions. She's trying to train the boys to be merciless killing machines. Uh, but, of course, something else is happening. Uh, and then we bounce back to uh, Brock on the beach with his Bond girl in her bathing suit. And uh, they've got some time to kill. Whatever are they going to do? And then she pulls up a six-pack of beer. Uh, that she's somehow carried up. I mean, that's that's convenient. And then we get Hank and Dean in their room. And this is where we get a deeper perspective into exactly what else has been going on with Hank. Because it's not just going down. Something's up. Because <laughs> Hank is taking down his Mary Lou Retton poster, much to Dean's dismay. Well, and uh, this is where you really get a an interesting chance to explore, uh, like, the boys' preference in, in women, right? So Dean has a thing for very much like the suicide girl type, you know, the, the Daria, uh, you know, goth chick. And then Hank has very much a thing for athletic women. You know, he's taking down the Danica Patrick and all that. Um, you know, these are all very tall, lithe women. Um, you know, Danica Patrick is not tall. Mary Lou Retton is not tall. They are all short. Race car driver and gymnast, there is nothing in either of those categories in which height is a benefit. You but know, they are wrong. Like, <laughs> you can tell how much exactly I know about either of those things. Well, I don't. I, I don't watch I, the sports ball or the the, the, the racing hoops. You know. I, I have spent a fair amount of time around race car drivers. Um, my aunt used to sponsor. Uh, I, I spent years going up in Indianapolis. My aunt used to sponsor a couple drivers, and uh, so we'd get to go to the Indy 500 every year and hang out in the VIP areas and this, that, and the other, and. Uh, at the age of, I think, 12, I was just a hair shorter than most of the other drivers, and I was always the little one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. wait a minute, like, they're, they're, they're like jockeys? 
Um, not quite, but not far from it. You know, everybody was, you know, well-conditioned. It was just one of those things that, like, and, of course, uh, a lot of these guys are pulling up, like, uh, what was it, Al Unser and Al Unser Jr.? You know, these guys are pulling up in, like, these massive, like, do you remember the old Humvees, the old Hummers? Yeah. Like, the original military Hummers? That's what they drove. And I remember my dad looking at it and going something like eight miles per gallon. Don't look twice. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's like, you don't want that. It only gets eight miles per gallon, whereas my Tercel. Mm. <laughs> Listen, I drive a Ford Taurus. I command respect. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that fuel efficiency, son. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so, well, um, and uh, this is actually a curious thing for me, kind of in the, the continuity of the boys, because later on, like, Hank has this fascination for his, you know, older curvier, you know, black male lady. Like, this is a, a completely, like, you know, is this like a stray thing? Or is Hank, you know, just have a, a swath palette of, of, like, you know, appreciation for the female form? Uh, what was it? Who was the janitor from 30 Rock? Uh, the, 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 Indian, the older Indian guy. Like, oh, I, it, uh... like, and at one point he's like, you know, I, I am but a sailor on the seas of pleasure. Suvas. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think that that's probably where where Dean kind of falls on the spectrum. Uh well, I think we discussed earlier that Dean does not have a lot of experience with women figures in his life. And that many of the female characters that he comes into contact with almost immediately misinterpreted as romantic interests slash mother figures, which is really complex and has more in common with our Freudian analysis of uh, Dr. Venture than it does with uh, the content of this episode. But, you know, when we look at Dean and Hank's interactions with women, you know, Hank is all in on, uh, on uh, Molotov here. And we see that play out by him taking down these pictures because these other women are no longer what does it for him because he is a man now. To which Dean replies, you finally got, or what was it, did you get one? <laughs> well, okay, and I've been meditating on this. Uh, <laughs> it's not like it sounds. Uh, <laughs> they bring, like, that's a, a thing that happens a lot uh, when they're being, like, generic about, like, some, like, when, uh, Colonel Gentleman talks about, like, you know, uh, coming out of his diabetic coma and, like, you know, Kiki finally giving him one by God. You know, is this the same quote-unquote one? I, I don't know, Neo. What, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm wondering, like, yeah, is one, like, did they get, you know, we speculated maybe what? Uh, a little bit of pubic hair, you know, maybe like a boner, you know. See, like... And I, I don't think it can be that because uh, later in the episode, he says the Apaches are back. Ooh, nice catch. Like, it's not, you know, it's not it, like, obviously, but we'll get to that later because it's so good. But, you know, I, my guess is it's, it's the former more than the latter. But it, it could have been, you know, the other ball dropping, so to speak. I, who knows? <laughs> 
Or it could be something completely unrelated. It could be like strawberry flavored astronaut ice cream, which they both decided was the key to manhood, because <laughs> they'd only ever had vanilla and creme brulee. Like the rest of this, they, you know, it, it literally could be anything. Their their minds are black boxes even to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much fueled by Batman and, you know, super science. Well, and I'm looking forward to when we do get around to doing our deep dive into the boys, uh, especially when we, you know, in, in light of some of the Freudian comments that we were making with Rusty, uh, you know, if you had to define which key driver is behind each of the boys, it's very clearly the id for Hank and the ego for Dean. Like, he is hyper-aware of himself, whereas Hank does not suffer from that debilitating condition. <laughs> when uh, Dermot doesn't act correctly uh, in the, um, uh, the kid's science fair episode, uh, where Rusty's throwing the, uh, the adventure, boy adventure day yeah. camp, that was, yeah, as soon as Dermot starts acting a little uncouth, it's just, it's more than he can take, and, you know, some people have to act a certain way, and we all need to present a certain way, and you're not doing what we're all supposed to be doing, and then he just, you know, has his little tizzy fit there, because, uh, you know, everything has to be as such for him. Boy, what a spinning murder top! <laughs> <laughs> that tizzy fit works out well for Brock, because Brock spent that entire episode wondering how he could punch a kid and get away with it. <laughs> Which, you know what, like, while we're in the Brock block, I guess, you know, we can discuss that, like... We're, we talk about, like, you know, obviously this is one of those things that rubs against his morality, you know, that comes up later on in the episode. And that's also one of those things, right? But it's more an, a thing of, like, not even morality, but, like, social acceptance. Like, yeah, I mean, I kill people, but people are going to be really mad if I punch this kid. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, it's actually one of Dean's shining moments, too, because Dean just has this break and goes full Cobra Kai on, on Dermot and Brock Sampson is just, I mean, it's literally, you know, he's like, ah, you know, he needs a cigarette after that one. <laughs> well, I feel like that kind of fully rounds out Brock as a dad figure. The, uh, the episode we're doing now. And then that just little slice from that episode right there, you get to see the nice, warm, caring, motherly figure. And then the dad wanting his son to beat the living hell out of that dumb kid on the playground who won't shut up. Yeah, never instigate it, but don't take it either. Like. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> is, is this coming from personal experience, Villain? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it actually is giving me ideas about having kids of my own because then I'll have little things to go punch stuff out there. Because, I mean, I'll admit it from time to time, the kid in line gives me an idea or two, but... You can't be a 30-year-old man bunching a 55-year-old child in a Safeway part, uh, line. Uh, not unless you're related. In that case, it's considered rearing. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> How about you, uh, Bradley Quiz Boy? Have you ever had one of, those, uh, one of those moments where you've had to essentially do the wrong thing uh, for the right reason? Not really. I've been a little goody two-shoes all my life, so hearing you all talk about this is just like, wow. What did I miss as a 10-year-old? Did I miss, like, beating up uh, on kids? Can I be honest? You were into the Venture Brothers at 10 years old, which I think gives you a leg up on almost every other 10-year-old. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but, like, only in the watching cartoon sense, not in the social or beating up other children sense. Well, and I don't know that that's necessarily something to aspire to. It's more <laughs> like... Uh, uh, like most Indian people, like from India, that you meet of a certain age are going to have a scar on their right arm. 
it's going to be in a circular pattern. And you'll notice it. It is a significant scar, and almost everybody has it. Um, and the reason for that is is because it's the way they delivered, I don't know if it was polio, but there was a vaccine that they all got, and there are a lot of them. It was part of this massive attempt to essentially help stabilize the Indian populace's susceptibility to this deadly virus. And they've all got that scar. And it's one of those things that everybody just kind of shares, like they've all been scarred in the same way. And some of the scars that we see in, uh, you know, the like, I don't want to call it bad parenting per mm -hmm. se, but, you know, those scars aren't always visible on the outside. You know, uh, see, I, mm, this is going to sound terrible, the only reason I had kids was so they could beat up other kids uh, <laughs> for money, like, you know, for, for, for profit, like, um Cockfighting is illegal, but like, you know, you can get a good preschool fighting ring running for, you know, at least a year and a half before it gets caught. Dude, why in the world would you spend money on professional fights when you just have to buy a bag of Starburst? Right. <laughs> like, here's, here's a Mountain Dew, buddy. Like, let's do it. <laughs> All right, Listen. son, this is your toughest fight yet. I'm going to introduce you to my secret weapon, Jolt Cola. <laughs> Oh, uh, the uh, the preferred cola of the hacker. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, so we've got Dean asking Hank if he got one, and Hank's reply to this is, "A gentleman never asks, and a lady never tells." Um, before we get away from this scene, I do want to bring up my favorite line from it, which is, uh, while Hank is taking down his posters, and, like, Dean asks him what's up, he says, Dean, 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 sometimes I forget that you're younger than me. And Dean says, yeah, by 11, four minutes. <laughs> but, yeah, it's something I could relate to, because, like, my brother is three minutes older than me, only three minutes, and that's still something that he brings up, like, even now. And he has never let you forget it. Never. Well, the response is just brilliant. It's like, then maybe in four minutes you'll understand. <laughs> These are the minutes you become a uh, lover of Russian women in the next four minutes. <laughs> hey, man, yeah, maybe four, I will understand in the next four minutes. A, a lot can happen in four minutes. I'm pretty sure that's how Doc became a father. <laughs> Horrible. Zing. Uh, okay, so I want to toss out like a, a fan theory. I've been considering this is this is something I'm putting forward. I don't know if it's a uh, one that already exists um, because uh, Quizboy has not told me about it, um, and that's how that works. Is uh, Quizboy is my denizen into the parts of the internet I'm too old to venture into? Is he your psychopomp? Yes, yes, exactly that. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, what if the boys don't have a mom? What if, like, at the end of the day, you know, Rusty just went in the bathroom, cranked out some knuckle DNA, and then had a bunch of hair samples and then mixed them together in a lab? I feel like that's probably been at least thought of before. I haven't seen it around. But also, then i got to wonder, where did Hank's blonde hair come from? Uh, like, that is clearly from Bobby St. Simone. Like, here's the thing. I don't think that yeah. the boys are clones of Doc. They are clearly like mixed with something else, but yeah. that DNA did not that, that did not have to be mixed the old fashioned way. This is super science after all. <laughs> yeah. That's a good well, way to I mean it. and I was gonna say like you know, uh traditional cloning, why can't we have like, you know, 
abomination uh, Jurassic Park cloning as well. <laughs> like, where you're literally uh, creating something episode, new. Did, didn't we have an episode like that where uh, one of the, what is it, Hank 19? Or, no, Dean, D19. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, uh, that's coming up. Uh, yeah, after we finish up uh, our Brock block, um, we're doing our, our Hank and Dean segments. Um, and that's going to be a pretty long trudge, if I'm being honest. It's going to be a great journey because, uh, you know, we're going to do a pretty hearty Dean and Hank block and then the boys individually. And that's definitely the one where, you know, you really learn a lot about not just Dean, but like, you know, um, Hank. <laughs> Very much about Hank and Such like prog rock, uh, egg chairs, and I mean, really, at the end of the day, the unforeseen like weirdness of cloning. What happens when like you have leaves one of these homunculi survive and you know just roaming around your compound because it's so big and uninhabited that you don't even know when somebody's living there. And I love the whole bit about how Dean pretty much moves into his room. <laughs> later on in the series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. So with that being said, let's go ahead and take a quick look at the flashback that happens next. This is a key moment in Brock's life. Not only is he training with uh, Colonel Gathers in the field, they're in Paris, and Brock is in a beret and a traditionally Parisian-looking shirt, uh, striped, one might say, uh, and they're discussing a key detail that will pop up two more times in this episode, namely, who it's okay to kill. And Hunter makes it very clear that you never, never kill women, you never kill children. At which point, Brock starts trying to disambiguate, asking specifically about Lady Vampire. Well, and uh, that's a very interesting thing. So that posits immediately... Uh, vampires exist. Well, I mean, you know what? We already knew that, though, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Like, we knew that Blackulas exist, so... Yeah. Well, um, and I thought it was really interesting. It, like, Hunter is like, oh, you mean Le Vampire, Nosferatu? Oh, yeah, they're undead. It, it would be fine. Except they don't exist! Which is, of course, something we know. Uh, I, I don't know if this shows the development of the OSI and their understanding, or if it shows uh, Hunter's unwillingness to reveal too much too soon, although that does not strike me as his tack. Well, no, because later on, you see him, you see him straight up, like, declassifying files in front of a corporal, making the corporal very uncomfortable. It's like, uh, I guess I'll look away? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Snoopy, uh, you know, very much is like, this is not protocol. <laughs> <laughs> Have we ever actually seen any actual vampires other than the uh, Blackulas instead of yes. other... Uh, where were the other... Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Remember um, uh, when he... Yeah, so like uh, yeah, Jefferson yeah, yeah. Twilight I, is... I just thought it would be really funny if this was a universe where we only had Blackulas. There oh, was. Got yeah, it. yeah. I was wondering maybe if they run... No, but you're right. They have shown them in other places. And theoretically, the investors could be uh, in that category as well. Oh, when we get to that, there's a whole fan theory episode we could do on the investors. I've seen some crazy theories on who, what they are, where they came from their actual relation to Killinger and everything else under the sun. That is definitely a hotbed of uh, fan theory there. Well, I am looking forward to exploring it in a future episode. Uh, the thing that makes this scene so particular in this episode is that this is the first moment that Brock sets eyes on the woman who will steal his heart and try to take his life. And that 
is Molotov herself. She is creeping around on the rooftops mm. of Paris. Well, technically, this is the second time because oh. they uh, they do, and of course, it's a little bit later on, but they do the retcon in OS I Love You where we see her in the 88 Olympic Games <laughs> with the, the Siberian Husky. Yeah. And by the way, like, that's a really cool look for, like, a, a Russian villain with the, the two color eyes, like, uh, you know, the, the hair and the whole bit. Like, it was, it was really solid, and it, I mean, it clearly had, like, a Rocky reference with the trainer and the tracksuit and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, man, the, the Olympics were really dramatic during the Cold War. Like, that's pretty awesome. Like, we need that. Now we can't even have Olympics. There, there's a lot <laughs> going on there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you remember how good the Olympics were when the Nazis hosted? <laughs> oh. There was drama. Uh, that, that, thank goodness there was a brown bomber, is all I have to say. Well, I mean, and that's exactly my point. Like, Jesse Owens comes out of nowhere, like, eat a dick, Hitler. <laughs> like, that's why the Olympics was amazing, was because... It was fucking Nazi Germany. Like it would that wouldn't have been quite as good if like all right yeah we're going to have like the Olympics in France this year. So like, it, it actually wasn't Jesse Owens. It was uh, Joe uh, Joe Lewis. Uh, oh, Joe was, Lewis is the Brown Bomber. Jesse Owens is. Oh yeah, the, the, the track yeah. The track guy. Yeah. Uh, no, Joe Lewis uh, had a, a very interesting relationship with Max Smelling after that uh, that thing. Like they were lifelong friends after that. Oh, dude. Like, well, so what? What America did to Joe Lewis was a crying shame. Uh, America had it out for him. Uh, He was essentially dragged through the mud. Uh, They took every penny he had. And uh, it was actually Max Schnelling who ended up paying for Joe Lewis's funeral. Yeah. Like, he had such respect for the man and was so horrified. Like, how bad is America treating a guy when a Nazi has to stand up and be like, yo, this is wrong? I mean, very much. I mean, granted, like, he was on paper Nazi. I mean, I'm sure he was very much, you know, not necessarily the most tolerant Please dude on the planet. Please don't say a man of his time. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not going to say, like, I mean, not the most tolerant dude on the planet, but uh, he was an athlete. You know, very much there were a lot of people conscripted into the party. Oh, absolutely. You know? And I'm um, certainly not pinning everything. Uh, you know, I, I would never presume to pin everything, but it's also one of those things, you know, what are you complicit in by virtue of your participation? And that's a, that's a, an interesting conundrum that has played sports for a long time, boxing in particular. Well, and if I'm being honest with you, I felt like that that was actually a missed opportunity in the, uh, the new Watchmen series. Um, when they did the retcon with Hooded Justice, um, I thought, like, you know, it would have been relatively era-appropriate to make Joe Lewis Hooded Justice. I mean, not to say they didn't do a great job. I mean, that I'm going to be honest, as a Watchmen fan, you know, both comic, where I say both, but like comic, movie, and series, regardless of what Alan Moore thinks, totally thought the, the series did a bang-up job just, you know, with the historical tie-ins and stuff, that was just another opportunity that they had, um, you know, was to have like a, you know, a boxer, like a former boxer come in and be hooded justice. Well, and you had, did have that a similar thing taking place. I think Joe Lewis would have been, because the... Tesla, or not Tesla, Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre was 1921, uh, right. which would have put 
him. I think Joe Louis may have been too old. Uh, yeah, he was born in 1914, so he would have been seven years older. So, I mean, it's it's still a stretch in the, like, I mean, it, it, it's still enough to, to give a leave, you know, flexibility in the time period. Um, and again, like, I thought it was really interesting that they went with the World War One historical reference there instead of doing the, the World War II thing. Um, because again, like, you know, World War One, the Germans actually, you know, actively reached out to, you know, the, the black soldiers and like, yeah, uh, why are you fighting for these guys? They, they aren't good to you. Well, and I mean, it's very strange, right? Like, uh, so the, the German propaganda in World War One pretty much prophesized exactly what happened to Joe Lewis in World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. Not ideal. Well, th- 38, yeah, so right before. Or, yeah, um, I guess in the same area. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's one of the key elements. Uh, when it, we are looking at how these things kind of play out across a historical perspective, it's the same perspective that we're getting with Brock in this episode, which is why I think this episode was such a good choice. Can you tell we listen to Dan Carlin? Right, <laughs> because we're seeing how... Yeah, Brock and Maul have known each other for a bare minimum of 20 years at this point, right? Like, we, because this episode aired in 06, uh, they first met in the 88 Olympics. They've been together, you know, off and on in this way for 20 years. And we are also seeing how these key moments have impacted how Brock approaches his job and potentially his love life. And while he's seeing Molotov, you are getting this line, no women, no children. So what is that immediately placing her in? And in fact, I think we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, about how you know the difference in treatment from women to men in combat situations is very different, and it's often the men's reaction to the women that is so damaging, not the way women handle themselves in battle. And in fact, uh, what is it? Uh, all, all the world's best assassins are all female? Well, I mean, and that's uh, very much... Uh referenced in the kind of meta symbol of her character, right? So Molotov is based on, uh, you know, uh, Black, Black Widow, Widow, and Black Widow is very much based on, you know, the, the you know, Red Sparrow assassins, like, you know, during and throughout the Cold War, post-World War II era, where essentially, like, you know, uh, they were trained in, you know, uh, being seduct- seductresses, right? Femme fatales. Like, uh, you know, they're very much made to make you think like you're the most important dude in the world because what's like the most glaring weakness with almost every man on the planet? Their ego. Uh, like, again, you start stroking <laughs> their ego. You're like, you know what? I'm not as suspicious. Tell me how awesome my beard is, please. Like, Ego please. is a really interesting metaphor for something a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was trying to have a little couth here. <laughs> but, like, I mean, it's not... Because, I mean, you know, these are also, like, military types and stuff like that. You have to tell these dudes how great they are. Your medals are really shiny. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not... There's an art to it, Jason. <laughs> well, and that art also involves, apparently, doing the shopping, because that is exactly what Maul and Doc have returned from. And Maul has got the bag of groceries, and then Doc comes up behind her. Apparently, he does not announce his presence loud enough, and she roundhouse kicks him, Chuck Norris style, 
all the way back into the wall where he fractures his 70s wood paneling uh, and like is starts bleeding. Then we bounce up to Dean up at the pool swimming with Hank and Triana and her friend Kim, thanks to Bradley Quizboy, we know that it is Kim, uh, <laughs> manages to uh, kind of stumble upon them. They're interested in taking a few laughs as well. But uh, can you tell us a little more about Kim uh, and kind of how she, like, where is Kim now and do we see her again? Well, we don't, I think we see Kim one time after this, maybe, when uh, Triana gets sent off to her mother's uh, for magical training, I, I believe. Uh, but there's not really a lot on her that we have. We know that she was last seen in, I think, Victor Echo November, I believe it is, uh, on a double date with Kim where she's, I think, I guess, dating Hank, and she manages to see several of the villains, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch, or I guess just Dr. Girlfriend back then, Phantom Limb, and the Monarch himself. And after meeting uh, Dr. Girlfriend, she thinks, you know, being a supervillain might be kind of cool. And was it, God, what was the other girl, like Jolly Rancher 2-7 or something like that? (laughs) Something like that. Uh, I was on the live journal. (laughs) Kim is such a character. Like, I was actually really expecting Kim to do a lot more appearances. I thought for sure we were going to see Kim showing up following the arch villain route. But, she, like, Kim was going to be the manager or an employee at a Hot Topic, and she was going to be arching Deborah over at Forever 21. <laughs> really oh, good is idea. that the same Deborah that Beck wrote about? Because <laughs> I, I thought she worked at JCPenney. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're cousins. It may be a different mall. I don't think she works at Glendale. But um, I have no doubt that she'd be down for a real good meal. <laughs> no, uh... That's kind of uh, one of the lessons in in Venturology 101, right? Like, they're going to set you up, and then, like, sometimes they will meet or exceed expectation on that setup. Other times they will, like, literally just kind of grow a a tree just to cut it down. (laughs) All right, so I've got another scene here coming up. Uh, we've got a great one here. It's um, Hank thinking he, that he's going to pull some kind of moves with Molotov. Uh, he pulls out all the stops. We've basically got him here in um, what essentially looks like the Chip and Dale's outfit, pretty much. Uh, I want to say he's got some kind of breakfast for her setup. Basically, he uh, strikes out, though, when uh, she wakes up. That's about how much <laughs> of the room he made it in with uh, that game plan intact. Yeah, he comes in trying to serve her breakfast in bed. He's wearing, like, the cuffs. It's very, uh, it's very, what was it, Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley? Yep, yep. Uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Yep. Wearing the Chip and Dale's outfit. And, I'm man, it is, it is not going well for him because what does Maul do as soon as she wakes up? Um, I've got a nice freeze frame here of a choke grip, very similar to a Bart Simpson style. <laughs> it's actually probably the closest to that I've seen in the entire show. He's got a bright red face. Uh, it's still got some, honestly, um, the newer seasons look a little crisper, a little cleaner. They almost clean up a little bit of the visual aesthetic. Some of the early seasons, though, you get these great, almost Scooby-Doo-esque reaction shots out of some of the face work, where if you do go frame by frame on some of the great action shots, just some of the ways that they're really drawing them. It's so 
it's honestly a, a treat sometimes uh, freeze framing it to go uh, stop an episode and go do something and just the magic that is that shot right there. Um, I, I wish everybody could see that she's got his tongue, the tongue sticking out, the face is turning half red, and he's cross-eyed. It's an absolutely beautiful scene. <laughs> you get a lot of cross-section of animation history, right? So, I mean, obviously they do a lot of art that's referential to the Hanna-Barbera of the 60s and 70s, but then, like, you know, you get these neat little references to... Uh, you know, something that's a little bit more on the contemporary end of animation. They haven't really done, like, a hardcore, like, Family Guy reference, and I don't think Family Guy's earned that place just yet. Hold on. This episode aired in 06. The Simpsons' first airing was 87 on Tracy Ullman. So, uh, I mean, we're within 20 years, and Family Guy came out in 99? Yeah, 98, yeah. 98. the, so well, we're, it, it, we're it, at it, that 20-year mark, so if it were going to show up, it'd be showing up, you know, maybe this season. That's true, and it were canceled for a little bit in between. I mean, I think they had, like, a two-year gap where uh, uh, I think Adult Swim picked it up and saved it, like they do so many it, shows. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, so the Adult Swim thing happened after the DVD release, uh, which I'm sure twice. you remember. Yeah, um, <laughs> and in fact, I remember, I, I still remember, I actually watched the Family Guy episode, uh, that ended the Family Guy. And as soon as I saw this one moment in the episode, I was wondering what was going to happen. It was that scene in season three where it's the De Beers commercial and it's the shadows dancing and giving, you know, like drops down on one knee and gives her the ring. And the tagline was, she'll pretty much have to, won't she? <laughs> and then after that, it just wasn't around as much anymore. It got canceled, uh, and it was the DVD release that actually brought it back. Cause, and in fact, Beast, do you remember Fifth and Right, bro? Oh, dude, yeah. So we're watching this on, like, a, a, a tiny little, like, what, 13-inch, yeah. tiny-inch tube television? To be fair, it, it was a color TV. <laughs> yeah, like, it, this was before, like, the ubiquity of flat screens. So we're watching the DVD, and they make the Tron reference. And there's like four or five of us like sitting in this living room. Uh, like there's no furniture in it at, at the time. We're all just no, sitting on the floor. When he says we're sitting in the living room, we are literally sitting in the living room because there's nothing to sit on. <laughs> yeah, like it was my first apartment and it was mostly a studio and then it had like two small off bedrooms. But yeah, we're all like all of our friends are sitting there watching it and like, you know, kind of kind of breaking the place in. And uh, they're doing it the Tron sequence. Danny and Sabby. Or me, me, yeah, me, me, you, me, you, Savvy, and Danny. And I think Rika Brown was there. Um, but yeah, like we see the background in the 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 Tron reference scene, and then we like I get him to pause it, and I'm trying to like look at it, and I'm craning my head around, and I can't. We we so I just, it a couple of times too. Yeah, and so I think we ended up turning the TV upside down, and the background has these like abstract shapes that actually spell out, like, you know, if you can read this, your TV is upside down. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly correct. Oh, dude, it, it was one of those moments. It was like, wow, it, 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 the fact that it got us to flip our TV upside down, it was very Andy Kaufman, like, you know, trying to get people to adjust their sets. <laughs> yeah. Like, Family Guy, Andy Kaufman, this. And I, wonder if, uh, I, I wonder what, if anything, they will include. Well, and you know what? It's that moment in my life that uh, no matter what anybody says about Family Guy, like, 
highbrow humor, lowbrow humor, like it got me. Like, you know, there there is a some sort of avant garde level to the show, whether you, you can find it or acknowledge it, you know, that's that's up to you. And like I, I turned my television upside down. Amen to that. And the Venture Brothers turns our televisions upside down because at this point we bounce back to Dean and Triana and Hank and Kim. And we've got Dean trying with Triana and essentially striking out in the most adorably Dean way possible. Uh, That's when we see Dean, uh, I'm sorry, that's when we see Hank down in the pool, right? Triana asks where Hank is. Uh, and before uh, we get there, let, let's talk about the universal experience that <laughs> men have. The with, shorts. Yeah, the, the water getting in the pockets of your trunks. Like, that's a beautifully captured moment. And, like, you know, he has to be smacks the pocket. Like, you push yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. It's like you know, going on a date and eating chicken wings. Nobody looks cool. Like. <laughs> no, man. No. Have you ever tried eating chicken wings with a fork? Why? There's no way to play it safe. Well, to keep your hands clean. Same reason some people eat pizza with a fork incorrectly. I might add. I don't know. I mean, uh, I believe uh, food is a lot like sex. It's designed to be messy, and if you're not using napkins, you're not doing it right. <laughs> man, I'm gonna need a, no, man, a towel. Just put a towel down. I'm not saying that I haven't eaten some burritos that don't require a towel. That has happened <laughs> in my life. <laughs> hey, man, what was it your uncle, uh, uncle Howie used to say? It's not a good sandwich unless it drifts down your elbows. Bingo. Yeah, uh, and my uncle Howie used to make sandwich for presidents. No joke. So he knows a yeah. thing or two about it. Yes, he does. So we've got. Uh, Hank swimming down to the bottom of the pool, and that's where he sees Doc and Maul in what is quite possibly their most excellent moment. Uh, Doc has essentially admitted that he's not going to get anywhere with Maul, and we actually hear the conversation that they're having in the room with them. Uh, Doc says, look, maybe we got off on the wrong foot. Can we just kind of start over? And Maul is kind of leaning in and is you know, like, yeah, okay, I busted him up a little bit. And Hank sees this, and what is clearly blood on his shoulder appears like, or on his collar and his lips, appears like something completely different to Hank. What is it that Hank thinks it is? Lipstick is my, my summation. Because we see him look at her lips, then to the collar, and that's when Hank has an episode. But is, is it an episode of frustration and futility, or is it an episode of Sandlot-inspired brilliance? To me, the gasp looks real. Uh, I'm going to have to give it to him. I think he made the best of a bad situation on the backside of this one, but I'm going to go with that was a real gasp. Um, I also, I'm not a... <laughs> gasp. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, uh, I love Venturia. Gasp. <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm trying to figure out the uh, the German book though that um or German or possibly Russian book that uh, Molotov handed to. Oh, uh, yeah, it's the Gru Spetsnaz uh, handbook, the Russian Special Forces handbook that Molotov gave Dean gotcha. Reed okay, because perfect. he can't swim because of you know the hole in his foot, very unsanitary. <laughs> I knew that had to be an amazing reference I didn't get, 
that is better than I have imagined. I knew Bradley <laughs> Quizbo was going to have the answer. Perfect. <laughs> That's, That's what I'm here for, I guess. Yeah. But so, I think it's really good that she gave him that. And, like, we're assuming that it's probably not in English, and I don't think the Learning Beds probably taught them Russian. So he's just looking at Cyrillic, just flipping pages. Well, and at least it's not taught, taught him anything, like, useful. Like, like how to make shoes. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, basically like, you know, h- how to, cl- you know, where's the smallest hole that I can climb through? Because it's, it's learning bed, you know, for Rusty Boy Adventurer, right? You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, where's the, where's the mummy factory, you know? <laughs> right. the, the Frankenstein factory, the vampire factory. So we've got... Uh, oh, and while we're while we're on, yeah, we we got we cut back, um, and while we're talking about Russian culture, uh, Doc is wanting to learn a little bit about Russian culture himself, and uh, inquires about mail order brides to uh, <laughs> Molotov, at which Molotov says, you know, she wouldn't know, and then probably one of the funniest lines, but also one of the like worst things about Doc Venture of the many <laughs> terrible things about him, you know, he's like, well, I ordered one of the Chinese mail order brides, but you know, the damn thing was dead when it got here. <laughs> oh. it, well, it, I mean, it, my question is, did he, did he even try to assemble it himself? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did Venture Stein have a part one? Cause there's probably only one part Doc was interested in. Oh man, they need to do the Bride of Venturestein, but like that movie Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the Chinese, like it's the mail order mail order bride trying to convince him to get out. Yeah, and of course you know she's trying to convince Hank. Oh, uh, like doing a Turing test with Venturestein. I don't. I, can he type? I mean, he's obviously got deft hands. Right, he he can make shoes. So there is some sort of dex- he's kind of a a peck typer, like you know your grandpa, like you know he does the the the, the pick and peck, right? He uses a pencil. <laughs> right. uh, we've got Maul saving Hank. She dives down to the pool, pulls him back up, and starts delivering mouth to mouth. At which point Hank makes his move and slips Maul the tongue. It does not go quite the way he anticipated, or did it? Well, and I'm I'm with Vaud Villain on this one. Um, you know, I, I think he's making, uh, you know, tequila sunrise out of out of lemons here. Um, well, we've got speaking of sunrise, uh, Dean notices something about Hank's shorts, namely that he's gotten he he's gone from six to midnight. Uh, <laughs> we've got him. And, and, of course, this just shows how unfamiliar the boys are with sexuality of any type uh, because Dean says, the Apaches are back, look, a teepee, at which point Hank starts screaming, ah, my pants are haunted. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I would love for them to have followed through on that later on, like, you know, calling up some sort of, like, paranormal investigation team to investigate their pants. Well, can you imagine Orpheus getting that visit? (laughs) Like, you've got Hank with a raging erection, standing in a dripping bathing suit outside Dr. Orpheus' door. Triana opens the door, looks down, 
It says, Dad, it's for you. (laughs) (laughs) Hank trying to explain that his pants are haunted and he needs him to, like, get rid of the ghost. And then Orpheus having to give the talk to Hank and Dean. Well, boys! (laughs) When a boy becomes a man... It might go a little better than Rusty trying to talk with him about it. I mean... Maybe. Maybe maybe. they would come out knowing more. I don't see Rusty Venture dropping the phrase, uh, there is a vast deference between the type of talk that Rusty would give and the one that Dr. Orpheus would give. Yeah. I feel like Orpheus might be a little nicer about it, maybe. Dare one say... I I think he would still be just as obtuse, though. Like, I would love to see the same cut montage of, like the birds and the bees talk that like Orpheus would deliver the same way, like, you know, the doc gave to Dean. And so like, you know, you see like the, you hear the, you know, uh, sexy Saxon, the dun, 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 dun. And like, you know, he's having the dolls hump, like the lamp and he puts his hand on his chest <laughs> because he, we've seen this where he tries to explain it to uh, Triana where he's like, you know, and the, the lingam, uh, <laughs> Into the yoni. Right. Like, uh, I think, you know, he would be better intentioned for it, but he would still very much be uh, just as obtuse about the whole situation. Right. Well, yeah. They're both, like, equally, uh, like, they're equally awkward in opposite ways. Doc's awkwardness stems from his pretense, whereas Orpheus's awkwardness stems from knowing too much. <laughs> <laughs> the what, what levels of, of things yeah exactly it's like you know doc obviously doesn't know much and him trying to explain it like he did would be his downfall so well uh, he doesn't know much but he knows he loves you hmm. aaron neville anybody oh come on neville brothers oh I, you don't have to convince me about the neville brothers i straight <laughs> up listen to them today <laughs> like and Peebo bryson like and it, 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 there was there was some magic on the grass. I was watering my lawn and accidentally stumbled across an eight, 90s adult contemporary playlist on Spotify. And it was, I, I was actually looking for a song, and I couldn't remember the lyrics or the title. All I had were a few words and a melody, and I was trying to find it and could not. But I did find some Aaron Neville and people Bryson in the meantime. Um, I want you. Oh, I need to explain like what this means when Professor Savage can't find a song. <laughs> this is actually a pretty big deal. Like he's kind of glossing over this. Um, but like, I, I'm a bit of a musical truffle hunter. He's the OED of like, <laughs> music theory and you know playlistology, like in in human form. Um, like, yeah, I mean, he, this, he could probably get you Moses in the burning bush in terms of like obscure, like, you know, uh, music and, and where it comes from and this, that, the other, like, so for him not to know something is, is actually just, it's remarkable. It's like beating the IMDB. (laughs) Uh, you know what? Part of me wants to sing the song and see if any of our listeners know what it is. Do it. Uh, uh, well, see, and now that I'm Aaron putting Adas. myself on the spot, uh, I'm having trouble remembering the melody. Um, and it was... Okay, uh, hang on, hang it, on. Quizboy, not... Quizboy, adjust the lights. 
<laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, Vaudevillain, hit the spot. I, I, right, I don't. I, you know what? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to wait on this because I can't remember the melody at the moment. It'll come to me. Give me a little bit, and then uh, and then okay. we'll bust it out when it's time. Actually, uh, but lyrically, it was like uh, the. It, I think it's the. Oh, someday we'll find it. The difference between us. And it was uh, like the difference between us or the distance between us. And it was a female singer, early 90s. Um, and that's, that's all I've got. And I was trying to research it. I was trying to figure out what it was uh, while I was like trying to water some grass. Uh, and that is how I ended up on this 90s adult contemporary playlist. <laughs> was Sorry it the part. Crusaders? <laughs> no, but it, like, but see, it sounds a little bit like the melody is just a little bit like the Rainbow Connection, right? But it's it's not. And I kept thinking that, like, I tried doing a few quick Google searches, and it didn't turn up anything. Uh, so I figured it had to be on one of these because it came out right around the same time that, like, uh, um, like Rock Set was still on the radio, and like when Peebo Bryson was on there for Aladdin. Like, it was right around that time period. All right, so just before we loop right back in, uh, fun fact about me, uh, I, as a grown man, will cry when I hear the Rainbow Connection. Hmm. Well, that's understandable, though. Like, I, I, there's just something about Muppets, and it doesn't even have to be a Muppet version, and it has to be a sincere version. And I've never heard an insincere version of this song <laughs> So, like, I it'll come on in my playlist randomly while I'm, like, you know, grocery shopping. And then next thing you know, like, I'm just crying next to, like, the cheeses trying to find coffee creamer. I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we get a mop on aisle three? Did somebody spill? No, 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 no. Somebody played the Rainbow Connection. So, something about after Muppet. our Apaches uh, have haunted... Hank's pants. We bounce over to Brock laying with his lady love in their jungle hideaway. And something is different about her. Namely, that when Brock rolls her over, there is a message scrawled on her. What does it say? It is uh, no more secrets. Um, that's what we've got on the, uh, the belly there, is just no more secrets. And for all intents and purposes, I'm sorry, intensive purposes, <clears throat> uh, we, you know, this woman is dead, and we get this phrase, no women, no children, echoing in Brock's head. Uh, well, and okay, I've, I've meditated on this for a bit, right? So, Brock is a trained espionage agent, and he doesn't feel A, body warmth, B, see the chest rise and fall, or, like, you know, check her pulse? Or are we just misinterpreting this? He knows that she's alive, but he knows that Hunter could have killed them both and didn't. And he knows that he's mm -hmm. got to kick this into action now, otherwise he's going to be playing Hunter's game, which he knows better than to try and win. Mm. Or maybe uh, this is in terms of... Uh, the OSI's estimation is correct. Like, when he sees no more secrets... Well, no, because, again, the echoing in the head kind of affirms that we're supposed to, you know, be implied that this is, you know, him crossing the line. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, the, the no more secrets thing, though, also implies that he's going to, you know, do the thing the OSI thinks, 
with uh, you know giving away state secrets, all you know going all the way back to the you know Second American Revolution. And we actually see this play out in the opening, the beginning of season four, uh, where we've got Brock up in the helicarrier, and they've got hatred up there too. And Brock thinks they're talking about him. You know, it's like, oh, he's got a, a head full of twenty years of secrets. We can't let it just let him go like this. And Brock thinks they're talking about him. And of course, you know, it makes absolute sense that the OSI would want to take out the man who knew too much. And when Hunter says no more secrets, the implication is that he's going to let those secrets out into the world, although we're going to find out very, very shortly that that's actually not what he has in store. But before we can get there, we bounce over to Maul getting ready to take a shower. She is stripped out of her black <laughs> widow outfit and into something a little more comfortable. And was, uh, what does he over, call it later on, like his, her, her Catwoman suit or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Uh, and she slipped in something a little more comfortable, a robe, and has made her way over to Brock's bed. Uh, she climbs on and obviously luxuriating in his scent and his presence, even though he's not there, something she would normally never get to do. All right, uh, they'd, quick they'd be too busy game. trying to kill each other. Yeah. What does Brock Sampson's pillow smell like? Soul Glow. Vaudevillain? <laughs> um... Cigarettes, come on. Let's be realistic here. <laughs> <laughs> Cigarettes. Uh, uh, Quiz boy? Blood? Blood? <laughs> God knows what's happening there. Listen. <laughs> you know what his, his pillow probably actually smells like? Pert Plus. And that's what I was going to say. Like, cigarettes, <laughs> Pert Plus, a little bit of, like, sweat, and, like, you know, uh, in through the outdoor. Led yeah, Zeppelin. yeah. Like, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking dusty vinyl. Some dusty uh, donuts. No, I want to make a Brock Samson scented, like, candle, like a Brock Samson fragrance. Like and what's the name? Weather <laughs> Pert Plus. Uh, what's the uh, what's the, the the wedding oil that you use, like on a whetstone? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I personally use olive oil when I'm I'm sharpening my knife, but that, that's just me. I think it's uh, supposed to be something not based something like not olive oil. <laughs> yeah, like it's supposed to be uh like I think a petroleum base, but again, if I'm using it for a knife that I cook with, I'm not, I'm not going to use that. So Yeah, so it, it smells like honing oil and uh and perp plus cigarettes and uh, you know, some slightly mildewed vinyl. Uh that that's probably what and, and leather you're going to add, you know, if you're going to make a candle, it's got to have the slight scent of rich Corinthian leather. <laughs> <laughs> so, By the way, well, like, do you, do you need to go ahead and explain Corinthian leather to people? Like, <laughs> Do I? Uh, actually, let's ask our youngest, uh, our junior member, so to speak, Bradley Quizboy, do you know what Corinthian leather is? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, so apparently I do need to explain this. Um, back in the day, uh, there was, uh, I forget, I, well, I think it was Buick, and in there, uh, they were kind of trumping, trumpeting up how great their car was. And uh, like, oh, the, the hardwood paneling and the rich Corinthian leather. leather. Corinthian leather is, leather is not a thing. It, <laughs> it's, it's actually not a thing. It, like, the quote-unquote Corinthian leather was from Ohio, <laughs> like you know yeah. rich corinthian leather and but it is one of those that like truly a hallmark of quality with this rich corinthian <laughs> leather you know supposed to be this this absolute bastion of luxury 
And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, let, let's be honest. If rock's going to smell like any leather, it's going to be Corinthian leather. Right. <laughs> so we've got uh, Maul in his room, and she looks on the nightstand. And what does Brock have in a mason jar on her nightstand, or on his nightstand? The eye. The eye. And, you know, this, of course, you know, what the, the interaction they have, oh, you stole my eye, to which he replies, you stole my heart. And he kept the eye. When she said, you stole my eye, he didn't just, like, Pai may take the eye. No, no, he kept the eye. He kept it. He took it. He actually took it. Uh, wanted to keep an eye on her. She's a looker, I guess. <laughs> well, and, you know, what I really enjoy about uh, him keeping the eye, uh, it really shows that, you know, Brock is sentimental. But also, uh, it shows you why he fell in love with this woman. Because later on, like, in uh, the OSI Love You with the nozzle, right? Like, she's got the... She uses the eye socket as, like, a, as an advantage now. It's a, it's a spy socket. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> spy socket. <laughs> um, so I mean, I completely she's got the spy understand. socket. She's got the prison wallet. She watched the movie Blade Runner, so she knows where to keep a tape. <laughs> or not, 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 not Blade Runner. Uh, what was the Schwarzenegger movie? Eraser. Oh no! Oh, God did he bless. get to the chopper? No. Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Running Man, not Blade Runner, Running oh, Man. So he yeah. ran to the chopper, of course. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, she's, she's, she's full of secrets. <laughs> so, uh, Maul is in there. She's, of course, lounging around, kind of experiencing Brock's room. Uh, who is in her room experiencing her in the same way? Uh, it's Hank, who has found her discarded clothes and is sniffing one of her boots, which... Uh, now, really. <laughs> wait, wait, no, Bradley Quizboy, I, I, I've got to dive in a little bit deeper here because it sounds like you have a very specific reaction to this. Well, I think, you know, with this and, like, stuff that we have kind of alluded to earlier and things that will uh, come up a little bit later, like, I think someone really, I think Hank needs to see a therapist for several reasons, but, like, we should probably catch this stuff while he's young, like... Is he okay? Like, you know, well, okay. with the Freudian stuff and like. So, uh, part of me thinks that this is a small Quentin Tarantino reference, because he's he's a known uh, foot fetishist. Right. Um, you know, they actually even joke about it on the commentary for Scott Pilgrim, where uh, you know Ramona is taking off uh, her boot, and it's you know it's a very like well executed scene because it, I mean it's Edgar Wright you know um, so uh, they even like made a joke like you know uh, the Tarantino shot she even says like you know in the audio like you know during the shot is like all right this is for you Quentin because she was in Grindhouse um, was it uh, not Planet Terror the other one um, Death Proof yeah um, and also. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, this is this is the 21st century. We're not necessarily kink-shaming people anymore. That's true. I don't want to yuck anybody's yums, for real. Right. But, like, you One know... One of us you, has to. But, I mean, I will say, like, you know, you do have to... There is a balance... Like, you have to find a balance of shame. You know, I will be honest. Like, one of my favorite quotes from Doctor Who was, like, you know, uh, a little bit of shame never hurt anybody. 
And uh, I, I say this because I am 100% positive my landlord will never hear this in the podcast. But he has a really weird foot thing, and he works at the local grocery mm. store, and they have to keep moving him around because he keeps creeping ladies out about their feet. Mm. He mm. even offered to buy my mom shoes one time. Oh, that's right. a little far. Mm. So I'm not saying, you know, please have your, you know, your things. I certainly do. But uh, maybe don't take them to work. <laughs> oh, <right. Yeah. laughs> well, Mark Twain said, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. <laughs> right. Oh, I mean, you know, Mark Twain uh, very much, I could see him saying that on the uh, the Venture Dirigible <laughs> um, because, I mean, he is surrounded by, like, Oscar Wilde and, like, uh, Alistair Crowley. <laughs> like. So we've got Hank making sweet, sweet Tarantino to this boot when <laughs> something we've been introduced. Okay, so it's a verb now. Right? <laughs> he, he Tarantinoed the boot, um, and he gets – he accidentally engages – the poisoned heel spike, which stabs him and sets up one of the most epic end sequences in any Venture Brothers episode. And right before that epic moment, I'm going to cut you off. We missed a quick scene in the middle. Uh -oh. here. <laughs> hit, hit me. Yeah, we actually missed the um, entire scene where we get a flashback here of Maul and Brock in the hotel room. Their uh, first rendezvous, yeah. Yep, it's uh, all. It all seems to be different pieces of that night getting cut together. Because uh, if I remember right, we even get a shot where we see uh, Brock's um, French outfit uh, on the floor. That now that he's uh, topless on the bed and everything, so it all looks like it's different pieces of that evening with Hunter. Well, uh, and, uh, what I love about this French outfit is it is just as stereotypical like what you think <laughs> French people wear. The yep. same way, like when Orpheus is playing, you know. The, the gentleman from the Italian space agency, and he's dressed like an Italian, like, gigolo. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, it just, the, the cartoonishness of it all is, is effing brilliant. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this is another one where you can look to the animation and everything, and just some of the stuff they do here is absolutely great. Um, I'm li I've got it here, and I'm just kind of stopping it every couple seconds in the middle of Molotov's flip, and they literally do have... Um, shadowed versions of she's here, she's here, you know, you're getting that old comic book style, the Spider-Man uh, when you would literally have him in five different places on a frame, but they're all kind of the, the little uh, uh, see-through so you're getting the idea that, oh, he's jumping here to here to there, they're nailing all of that stuff in this one little moment and it's just, it's an absolutely beautiful shot. Well, and yeah, I think the sound effect uh, accompanying that is also the da na 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 yep. yep. <laughs> right, the $6 million man Yep. So well, we've and, got. Oh, go ahead. And you know, further explaining why you know his his further you know infatuation. So you know he obviously uh, let's let's address the fact he asked to keep the boots on. Right. <laughs> While we're talking about you know the the Tarantino of it all, um, and I made it an adjective. Um, Ooh. Uh, so, the fan theory about Brock actually being possibly somehow Hankstad as well, and the, I've never noticed this until just right now. But the fact that they both got a boot thing, 
Um, maybe and that they're blonde. One. Yeah, there's there's an idea that there's an that their boys were. Um, Let's say both of them went into their own bathrooms and uh, got a little bit of something to put into the cup, and they just threw both of the dads into the cup and saw what came out, and we ended up with the boys. That uh, can't be true because a little bit later on, we actually get, I think in the next season, uh, we, uh, or sorry, season four, we actually get uh, Brock's first introduction to Doc, and it's actually down in the cloning bay. True. true. He folds the cigarette into his mouth. Oh yeah, my god, exactly. fan theory crumbled, oh my god. <laughs> and, and he is dressed like, uh, like actually, I love the both of their outfits. It is so stereotypically and quintessentially 90s. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> like, yeah, the, the poncho. Yeah. <laughs> the poncho hoodie. Um, okay, so, and then we have, like, or the boots, which he requested, in which she immediately stabs him, like, in the kidneys. Right, you know, uh, and then, uh, you know, pulls out the, the Ninja Turtle size, bam, Raphael's him right in the neck, like, you know, and the, you know, the, the neck muscles there. Um, and then, you know, falls over and jumps backwards, lights the match, and you, what'd you call it, an Ohio blue tip, like yeah. it strikes on any surface. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lights the room on fire, and he's just like, woman, like, yes, <laughs> you know, uh, and then, you know, to further, like, you know, add a little bit of insult to injury, she jumps out, and he's like, you know, oh, she took the cigarettes! She has <laughs> stuck him with her heel spike, she has stabbed him, pinning him to the bed with her size, uh, her Ninja Turtle Raphael size, she has then flipped backwards across the seat, like, into the air, struck a strike anywhere match and a high blue tip on the ceiling, lighting the room on fire as she lands and then flees into the night. And Brock is just completely amazed. He is so overwhelmed with how much he is in love with this woman. And mm -hmm. then he realizes she took the cigarettes, but to add insult to injury, what does she do next? She flips the butt of her lit cigarette onto his chest, letting him know that is the only butt he's getting that night. Flicks <laughs> the butt onto his heart. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that it, it reveals not only that she's got these heel spikes, but I mean, that's, it, it tells you everything you need to know about the kind of Brock or the kind of woman that Brock is into is the kind of woman that can do that to him. Well, and yeah, like uh, to go into the, uh, you know, the the palette of Brock Sampson, um, you know, was it the, the Dr. Quim episode? Um, there's that weird, like, obviously, like sexual tension between him and Ginny, mm -hmm. right? And she's, you know, not what you would necessarily call uh, traditionally attractive when standing next to Dr. Quim, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, Rusty believes Dr. Quim is like, you know, the uh, cure for impotency. I mean, yeah. the way they drew her, he's not wrong. I'm, I'm also a sucker for a redhead. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, that whole interaction with Jenny, and then they finally, like, have a good tussle with the room on fire. Like, <laughs> there's a, I guess there's a running theme there. But, yeah, uh, you know, it seems to be, like, super, like, strong women that can hold their own um, that are also, like, I guess, uh, you know, more so that they can impose on him. Like, let's be honest, Brock Sampson, 
is like he's already showing submissive tendencies well before he meets Oriana. <laughs> yeah, well, I... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just to say, yeah, uh, is the perfect woman for him because, I mean, you see what happens when you get the nice, strong, powerful woman, something right in his wheelhouse, but clearly... Uh, at this point, at least in their relationship, Maul's trying to figure out if this is going to be a thing, potentially. She's like, are we going to run away together to Monaco? There's all this talk. And then uh, you finally get the one who, I mean, Warriana is the exact opposite. The morning after, she's like, you're still here? Like, and that's the one that he's all over, the one who couldn't care less about him being around, per se. Um, I just absolutely love the one. You, you know, you always assume you're going to go after the uh, the person who chases you, but I guess uh, we're always attracted to the person who seems to want nothing to do with us. So, <laughs> Was it uh, Hedeiger said, you know, we pursue that which retreats? Exactly. Heidegger? Yep. Heidegger, yes, there we go. Okay. Uh, what was it, uh, the other great philosopher... The vision said, strength invites challenge. I buy that. Wow, like, I did I not mean to Larry King the conversation. I apologize. No, no, no. Like, you actually <laughs> no, saw yeah, no. there. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> the, the truth about Warriana, um being the, the Wonder Woman parallel, like, she should definitely be able to put him in his place. Uh, not necessarily, yeah. like, you know, uh, like, if, if we're... Not in the bedroom battlefield, you know, uh, but, like, if they met, like, in conflict, like, she's winning that fight because, again, she's a supernatural enemy. Don't get me wrong, Brock Samson is savage, but this is coming up on, like, you know, uh, what is realistic about the character? Because the thing about it is, Brock's also not dumb. He doesn't seem to throw himself into situations he doesn't think he can get in, like, get himself out of. I don't think his, you know, Wolverine-style, like, feral rage uh, in, in a straight-up fist fight is going to take down Wonder Woman. Um, so this is really like a woman who is, A, disinterested, or at least plays so. Because, again, you know, we don't know if it's an act or if she's just being a little flighty or, you know, whatever, um, playing hard to get. But, like, you know, that definitely, like, puts him on the trail. And then on top of that, like, she clearly manhandled him. Like, the, the most literal definition of man handled. Don't you mean um, woe manhandled? Woe manhandled. Right, like, and it's going back to that, uh, you know, the hot dolphin scene where, like, <laughs> giant hunter picks up, you know, this is Brock's, like, ultimate Lynchian fantasy. Yes, I finally got to talk about Twin Peaks again. <laughs> but, yeah, like, they have this big fantasy, and he's, you know, in between, like, Hunter's gorgeous breast at this time, you know. Uh, uh, you like, call it correct, his big, beautiful tits. Yeah, fair, fair enough, yeah, absolutely. Um, a gift from Godman and Super Science. And uh, that, like, you know, is very much reflected in the kinds of women he likes. He wants a really strong mother figure. <laughs> he wants, like, a Kathy Bates mom. Well, it, let, let's be honest. What does Brock want? He wants to be dominated. Like, this is as clear a, a, a portrait of his interests as we can possibly get. Uh, Brock is a man for whom strength is his defining characteristic. What would be his number one most forbidden illicit desire? To be dominated. It's the thing that he can't get in his life that he would want most desperately. And that's right. why Maul and Warriana have this unique relationship with him. 
You know, right, we've so... seen Brock bed a number of people throughout the series. There was that haggard old prostitute. You know, there's this Bond girl here. Uh, but he's never bedded Molotov, and yet it's her eye that he keeps on his nightstand. Well, and okay, so what does that necessarily uh, also say about their relationship? Because, again, they have that dynamic, but... Uh, like, uh, she's the chased one. Oh, he is definitely chasing her. Uh, well, I said and, chased, yeah, like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, thing is, yeah. ah, ha, 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 ah. See what I did there? So, uh, you know, yes, and you know why she's chased? It was a promise she made to her father, and then Brock killed her father. Oh, uh, what? So, <laughs> no, I didn't know this. Yeah, so Brock can't actually do anything he is actually the is indirectly responsible for his own situation. Like, well, but then, like later on, <laughs> like she has the same relationship with Monstroso. Oh, she has a way better relationship with Monstroso, and Which, that is what kills Brock. Yeah, I mean, like you hear his like it's not a battle cry, it's like a a, <laughs> a death rattle, like a pain moan over like you know the rockets and the choppers and all this like you know going over the boat. You hear him like, <laughs> which one of my favorite things about Brock, he can elicit like when he emotes when he finally lets it out, he's the loudest thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like oh dude, that that hotel room scene. Where he's got to go to the bathroom for a minute. Uh, that was actually <laughs> that was actually the first scene my oldest ha watched of this show. He walked in while I was watching that episode, and like I I didn't know how much about I needed to explain, so I just waited for questions. <laughs> there weren't any, so I was like, okay, we'll just we'll just see how this plays out. <laughs> Maybe I should put hand sanitizer in the bathroom now. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I, we're not at the point yet where I've got to worry about cutting my hand on a sock. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in in the commentary for Thanks for Nothing, they actually, like, Doc and Jackson talk very extensively about this incident when uh, Doc was a kid where he had his sock and he accidentally threw it on a radiator, like uh, like the radiator that warms your house. Uh-huh. And, like, just describing the smell of that. Ah, uh, that's, uh, wow. Like, yeah, that's, like, that's, that's one thing. Like that's Ed, one that's th Ed Muskie. They, like, that's one of the things I love about the commentary is they are not afraid to, like, lay it all bare. And that's why I share things like the Rainbow Connection. Like, I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, model a lot of the sensibilities of this podcast on, like, their commentary. Oh, it. Beast, you, uh, you've got a long way to go, sir. You, you are but an acolyte at the foot of the master, uh, apparently, because uh, you shared Muppets. They shared soul-shearing details. <laughs> I'm a grown, I'm a 35-year-old man who cries in public about Muppet songs. Musicals, like, not even, like, legitimate musicals, like Sondheim and stuff like that. Like... <laughs> So the last musical I cried at, I cried from laughing so hard. Uh, my wife took me to go see, my wife loves musical theater. She took me to go see uh, The Phantom of the Opera, and, which I'd never seen before. You know, and I was like, yo, let's, let's, go, let's go check this out. 
um, we're sitting in there, and there's a track, there's a song called Music of the Night, which apparently is a very famous song. And uh, I ain't never heard it. They're singing, and I'm like, yo, this is Fish Heads from Dr. Demento. Fish <laughs> Heads, Fish Heads, roly-poly Fish Heads. And I'm like, I wonder which one stole from which. Come to find out, Fish Head came first. So Phantom of the Opera, one of the most, like, awarded musicals of all time, is a ripoff from a Dr. Demento sketch about trying to sneak a fish head into a movie? Huh. That huh. is why I cried from laughing so hard. Because I, pull, I had my phone. I pulled it up. I looked, and I'm sitting in a theater full of people in formal wear, all of whom are rocking out to this melody, and none of them has any clue where it came from. Oh, dude, it's like when you find, like, I remember when you found out that uh, the song that never ends from Lamb Chop's Play Along <gasps> is actually a Jewish battle hymn. That, dude, I was the most, you, I was such an embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am so respectful of other people's religious traditions uh, because they're all the same to me, right? Um, and they're all in the same boat, and that it's a slow boat to nowhere. And so we are sitting, my friend uh, Case at the time was, uh, uh, was essentially converting to Judaism. And I was like, yo, let me come with you to your church and just kind of see what's going on. So I went to temple with him. And we're sitting in temple, and I'm listening to this hymn. Now, bear in mind, like, the Jewish temple service is run very differently. Like, you can tell the amount of tradition that is in their services, because it's not like a revival, where they're extending every little piece out as far as they can go, because they don't have enough to fill it, Right. That's why they got to blow away COVID-19 with the wind of God. I'm Bitcoin, I blow! Right? Yep. They've got a lot to get through. And the cantor is running through it as quickly as he possibly can. So they get to the point where they're going through, and they're all going to sing this ancient Hebrew battle hymn. And it is, I kid you not, the song that never ends. And as soon as it starts going, like, my friend is sitting there, and he is solemnly reading this and singing along in Hebrew, and I am flipping out. I am, like, trying my damnedest not to jump into the air. Like, I am a coiled spring of surprise at that moment. And it took everything in my power. But you, if anyone who is sitting behind me, it knew exactly what was going on. Like, and of course, my friend is sitting there trying to ignore me, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing the body movement equivalent of, ignore me! <laughs> yeah, uh, suffice to say, uh, when music shows up, I am very excited to see it. <laughs> and we now get to the point in this episode where the music shows up because we get our, do, do we call it a pan, a, an ode, a, uh, a, 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 I wouldn't call it a parody, 
it is more it, it is on parity with the apocalypse now scene because we get the low strumming guitars actually no there were no guitars in the doors uh, we get the strumming sounds and the drums and like the rhythm starting to build for a song that sounds more than a little similar to the end by the doors it, Dean starts yeah. going into the or sorry Hank starts going into this psychedelic trance and who appears to him in his trance it is a vision a hallucination an eidolon of Molotov cocktails and she is whispering words to him that he knows in his heart to be true your father will never let us be together she is telling Hank what he knows and Hank knows that he has to do something about it and she does exactly what he hoped she would do of course her outfit is sexy it is sultry and it is revealing but it does not reveal everything and that is why at this moment she reaches her arms up her hands grasp the sides of her outfit and she starts to slide it down revealing her breasts which are more than just regular breasts they are delicious pillowy mounds of Hank's freaking face <laughs> Hank melons man they are Hank melons and what are these Hank melons telling him uh, kill your father yeah kill your father kill kind your of, father yeah kill pop kill pop and then there's the one in the bathroom goes pop. you should totally kill pop <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think that that's the one that sells it, too. Yeah. It's like when you're hitting somebody with, like, yeah, I dare you. Yeah, I double dog dare Triple dog dare you. Yeah. Sealed. Yep. So we've got the end analog playing through, and it's just like Apocalypse Now. And we get this kind of, like, we get this, this jump cut, and it's going back and forth between Brock and, uh, and Hank. And... Well, the thing that is so interesting about this, as Brock has gone off into the night to find Hunter, um, he's made his way up to this, like, Khmer temple. I can only assume it's in, like, Bali or Indonesia or Cambodia. It's and in Micronesia. Micronesia. So, yeah. what, I don't, now, I don't want to get too detail-oriented. Um, were there Micronesian ancient empires? Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I watched Moana, if that counts. <laughs> right. Uh, that was pretty awesome. Um, but uh, I, I really, like, I, I kind of saw Micronesia um, in the, the same way that, like, you know, the whole thing was also, like, a an ode to espionage, right? Like, uh, especially, like, Cold War espionage. So you have a lot of, like, um, globe-hopping. Even in, you know, uh, the flashbacks when they go to Paris, and then you have, uh, you know, Brock's journey, like, you know, he's in the limo, and then he's in the sub, and then he's in the torpedo. Um, so, yeah, it was all these, like, exotic locales. Uh, I know nothing about Micronesia, um, and this is going to be, like, the worst, most American thing. I didn't even know it was a real country. It sounds like not a real thing. Uh, the thing is that it's not, it's a collection of different small islands. Yeah, it's a bunch of, it's as a Micronesia as opposed to Macronesia, which is off the coast of Indonesia. Oh, yeah, see, I knew nothing about the Nisias. 
Uh, well, you need to know this. Uh, the oldest building in, in Micronesia is the Nan Modal ruins in Pohnpei. Pohnpei, not Pompeii. Uh, it was a uh, it was active from 1200 to 700, um, which I think you know the temples that they went with looked vaguely like Indonesian slash Aztec. I don't know that they were trying to be quite as detail-oriented in this episode so much as they were trying to set a mood. And that mood was expertly set as we get Brock stalking into this temple after his quarry. We've well, got and, Hank. Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah and I was going to say it's, it's brilliantly intercut with Hank stalking up you know, behind Doc Venture. And, you know, you were talking about that ode to uh, the doors, this is the end. Um, you know, kind of knowing what I have know about Thurwell uh, and, you know, the research I've been doing for, you know, the upcoming Learning Lab episode about music, um, no, like, he, he very much uh, takes this stuff, you know, pretty, pretty, like, you know, genuinely. Um, the same way, you know, uh, Danny Elfman, takes his projects or Mark's mother's bot like, you know, is this a thing that he might have made as a person in a band? No. But, you know, as somebody doing this kind of project, he gets to riff on that. He gets to have fun. And he does this great job because it has this like, you know, almost, you know, tribal and it suits the Brock mood, this like dun 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 and it has like, you know, that uh, you know, very doorsy, you know, dirgy funeral feeling behind it. Dude, Thurwell is a freaking genius. I remember listening to Elfman once, and he was saying that uh, that temp music is the bane of his career. Uh, and, like, let's be honest, the end was temp music in this, and then they asked Thurwell to put it together, and Thurwell knocked it out of the park. And he probably just tossed it together. He was like, oh, this is nothing. You know, you, you want to see my really good work? Check out my Keebler commercial. You know what I mean? Like, he's just, like... He's like, no, no, you don't even understand. It's so complex, you can't hear what's happening. Well, like, and you know what? Just a genius. His best, like, uh, you know, uh, well, we'll, I mean, not necessarily in terms of, you know, intent or anything, but we'll call it, you know, parody work, right? Uh, this one was brilliant, but you know what was even better? The uh, the <laughs> opener for season six when uh, Rusty's rich. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, the the uh, was it CNC Music Factory like style cover. Um, he's got the power. Yeah. Snap. <laughs> yeah. And um, they even talk about it like on the commentary where he's like, you know, we make him like we ask him to do these things that like him make music that he would hate, and you know. He's really just, he has a lot of fun with it, like, uh, you know, talking about just how much he he really enjoys, like, he doesn't have to do a whole album of this, he's not intellectually committed, but you know what, he gets to deconstruct it and then put it back together. Um, Dude, well, and deconstruction and putting it out together, that's a big chunk of pop music, like, uh, everybody by the Backstreet Boys is going to make you sweat by CNC Music Factory. Yeah, uh, and uh, well, what what is it? Smells like Teen Spirit is Boston's more than a feeling, and there is great work that can be done there. And Thorwell knocks it out of the park, even in genres like the man mastered drum and bass, like on a lark. Right. Like, 
Like it, it's just, it's just, oh, what so damn impressive. So we've got Hank with this machete that he's grabbed off the wall. He bursts into Doc's office. Doc has got his back to the door. He's working on something. Hank comes in and says this line from the door song, Father, to which Rusty Venture replies, Yes, son. Hank answers, I want to kill you. Right? And then we see Brock coming in, and it's the same thing. Like, Hank and Brock are both having to kill their father figures. It's intercut, and we get to this moment where Hank is getting ready to butcher his father with a machete when Molotov, Cocktease, runs into the room and yells, Nyet. And as Brock is approaching the dais on which Hunter Gathers is laying with a sheet draped over him, the doctor, Dr. Volcano, who appears to be so clearly based on Hugo Strange to me, but we'll, we'll find out soon enough. We'll debate that later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> says, you know, no, don't. And this is, we, we, we're building up to this moment where they both have to make a choice. And we see how this choice is going to play out. And you've had an outside figure step in and ask them to search their conscience. He sees the doctor's handiwork. Brock sees the, you know, Hunter laying there. And the doctor says, don't. And Hank says to Molotov, I want to kill him, baby, yeah! <laughs> right? And then arches his back in a very Jim Morrison-esque man. I don't know that I can repeat that again. I, I, I know I'm not doing it justice. I'm um, going to make that my uh, notification tone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, and, I, and what I love about that is at home, just... I encourage you to do the same. Well, and what I love about this is he's just feverishly rubbing his bathing suit area. <laughs> like, and if I remember correctly, like, Morrison was arrested for lewd conduct, like, you know, masturbating himself on stage, right? Oh, man, he, uh, he, he, had, he had urges. And one of those urges was not having a guitar in their band. <laughs> well, that, like, synth organ thing, man, that was boss. Like, dude, Ray Manzarek. Yeah, like, that dude, that dude's about as epic as it gets. Like, he, he, he's, an, he's a legend for a reason. Uh, and, like, you know, it takes a lot as a keyboardist to carry a rock band, and he did it. Uh, kind of a side note there, one of my absolute favorite ones, a uh, bartender at my local bar, whenever the doors comes on, if there's somebody new at the bar and he's trying to size them up, he'll immediately walk over and go, Doors, greatest guitarist ever, and just walk away and try and just catch and see what the reaction is of the new person. It's a really good litmus test to see who you're dealing with here, I feel like. Um, yeah, I I'm think that litmus old. test might be a little dated. It probably is, but I go to a kind of dated bar, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm 42, and I'm the youngin'. Uh, I'm out here in Vegas, and uh, we have a mainly uh, the, the, the much older crowd that lives out here. It's more of a 50s, 60s bar that I go to, uh, age, age range-wise. But um, Do you go to yeah. a VFW? <laughs> Oddly enough, pretty much everywhere you go around here, it sort of looks like the VFW uh, once you get off the strip, so uh, you might as well say so, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I want to see the real Vegas. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to travel to Vegas. I want to see the real Vegas. No, no, you, you really don't. It's a 450-pound man uh, in a too-tight T-shirt uh, complaining about the guitars from the doors. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we've got, uh, at this point, 
Hank stalking toward his father, and we see the shadows of his attack, and then we bounce over to Brock again. And Dr. Volcano has a message from the colonel to Brock. After 40 years, I'm finally tired of the game. I'm tired of the secrets. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of running. And he just, you know, I know you'll understand. I know you'll understand. And Brock's response to that is, I have my orders. And he pulls back the sheet to plunge the knife down into Hunter's chest. But Hunter's chest is different because Dr. Volcano has done something to him. He's given him a pair of big, beautiful tits. <laughs> and at this moment, Brock is horrified. He doesn't know how to process what is happening. He yells, what did you do to him? And Dr. Volcano says, only what she asked. And what you're seeing right now, I think the phrase that we used earlier was cognitive dissonance. And the cognitive dissonance between what Brock has known and what he now has to accept or either not accept. And it is that acceptance that Hunter is hoping Brock will come to and spare his life. Brock grabs Dr. Volcano and Dr. Volcano, he, he's saying, this man was like a father to me. And Dr. Volcano says, now he's like a mother. <laughs> and we get this scene where he keeps slapping Dr. Volcano. And Dr. Volcano's like, like a father, like a mother, like a father, like a mother. And that's really indicative of what's going on inside Brock's head at that moment. Because we also get another echo of what Hunter said to Brock on that rooftop in Paris so many years before. No so, women, no children. Yeah, exactly. So that's when we get Brock's final choice. It's all built up to this. We saw the choice that Hank made. Hank chose to murder his father. We saw the attack. We saw the shadow of his machete fall on an unsuspecting Dr. Venture. Will Brock's knife finally fall on his father figure and we see the knife come down and you hear the thunk as that knife sinks all the way down into that gurney and then the well, camera pans back <laughs> well and just like you said uh, you know this was in the the slapping the doctor with the your mother your father and your mother right uh, that's indicative of the, the conflict in his head, right? Like he's figuring it all out. This to me is also very symbolic of him actually like killing his father as well to accept his mother. You know, I, I hadn't quite put that together, but perhaps you're right. Perhaps he's not just burying a knife into the gurney. He's killing the part of him that wanted to kill him. Well, and what I've noticed is, and maybe I'm reading a little bit more into it, uh, he leaves the knife. And this is a big deal. Like, yeah. they make a very big deal out of this later, and it's kind of nonchalantly passed over, but, like, you know, he leaves that knife. He has to get another knife. You know, is this the knife that, you know, uh, the father figure gave him? You know, uh, is this or, the, the warrior's it... burial? Yeah, or, because again, he chooses not to kill Hunter. He buries the knife in the garden. He doesn't kill Hunter. Is this 
a tacit like support like you're going uh, to need this well wait okay so when you're backtracking just a tiny bit you were saying that um from hunter's uh note to him does he say i know you'll understand twice you said it twice does he say it twice i thought so i thought i thought the There's, doctor if he does say it twice then that might be a reference back to the beginning when he's uh, talking about are you ready for anything weird are you sure? Are you are, sure? Are you ready for anything? Are you still ready for anything? <laughs> exactly. And the, are you ready for anything? Well, here's the weird. Uh, <laughs> and you need to be ready for what's about to come forward because I'm about to go dark. You're going to have to be prepared, and there's going to be some weird stuff coming up. And if you think that uh, me being a woman is weird, uh, then you ain't You're doing not nothing. You're not going to handle this. Well, yeah. And what's Let's really take a look at this really quickly. Why does Brock decide not to kill the colonel? And I don't think it's because he just decided to become a woman. I think it's because he realizes that the mission that he was sent on was based on bad intel. The colonel isn't trying to like spread secrets. The colonel is trying to get away from them. And he's trying to leave his life behind. So the idea, you know, the mission that Brock was sent on was to kill this guy who's going to reveal all of these secrets. Brock realized that it's not the secrets he's trying to, like, he's trying to give away. He's trying to get away from the secrets. And it's this recognition that I think is the, is the heart of why Brock chooses to let Hunter live because he realizes that Hunter isn't the threat that OSI fears him to be, and he makes an executive decision at that moment, but it's also one that kind of plays back into the, you know, no women, no children, and it, which also makes you wonder if the colonel chose to do this because he knew they were going to send Brock, and Brock wouldn't kill a woman. Like, well, maybe that also, was his long play. Well, and also, uh, think about this. Uh, now that we know the long game, and that he also uses this as a cartoonishly weird and an awful plan to infiltrate the Blackhearts. Uh, because, again, he does, like, zero work to his, his face or, like, I think he maybe grows a ponytail. But, like, he's still, like, five o'clock shadow hunter gathers. Like, he just, he's living his truth, you know. He is her. And, uh, like, you know... Looking at the long, and he, well, I, I keep saying he because he comes back around, and that's always something I've, I've been, you know, questioning as a decision is uh, to have the sex change back because he even explicitly says he misses, you know, being like herself in that body. Um, yeah. So well, and it, when Brock, but again, you miss comes back around. Brock decides to let him live and walks away, and then comes back to check under the sheet. <laughs> he checks <laughs> even he, further down, and well, he uh, says, "What are the, the sure. five stages of grief? Like he just <laughs> killed his father. What are the five stages? Of, he's negotiating. He's bargaining. <laughs> like, well, can now, I still do my job?" <laughs> here's my question. Here's my question for you. Uh, did he go full Bruce Jenner, or, did, or I'm sorry, Caitlyn Jenner, or do you think he went uh, a little more uh, like half and half? Um, you know what? Uh, I believe that Hunter is not like, you know, he's a very committal individual. Um, and I think that that is ultimately like when, 
Hunter finally decides to retire from the OSI and uh, shoot him off, shoot himself, you know, shoot himself off into space. He's going to do so as a woman. Question: The, the reason I'm inclined to say he didn't go all the way uh, was because Brock looks and says, "I had to be sure." Uh, and one of the things that we see later on, when uh, during the family that slays together. Uh, when he's giving Brock the additional stuff he needs, like, you know, okay, I'm going to need a vehicle. I'll give you my keys, but you're not going to like looking for them. Uh, the way it's animated appears to imply that uh, there is a bulge. Well, it's a big ring of keys. <laughs> like, he was running, like, he was in OSI. Do you know how many offices that is? <laughs> yeah, but if he had his running man pocket, then, you know, it would have been a little different. Like, his spy pocket. Yeah, uh, so mayhaps, mayhaps. Um, so this brings us to the credits, the credits roll, and then we get our stinger, which is Brock coming back home to the compound where Molotov uh, has the family there, at least most of the family. And she, again, has no respect for the life that he's leading and her exposure to it, even all the craziness and the weirdness and the danger and everything else, the, the ghost Apaches, <laughs> uh, you know, she's like, you don't miss the action. She's offering the chance to come with her again. She wants him to leave. She <laughs> wants him to come first with time. her. Damn. And yeah, like Brock, of course, is like, do I miss it? The moral ambiguity, the weirdness, and uh, with an emphasis on weirdness. He's like, sorry, but uh, and then genuinely from his heart, he says, go team venture. Like mm -hmm. Brock is all in on this family. And then, noticing some of the family isn't there, he asks where Hank is, to which Dr. Venture replies, Hank's grounded. And we notice that Doc is there. We just saw Doc get murdered. What happened? Well, Hank's grounded for attacking him with a papier-mâché machete, uh, peeing his pants and passing out. And notice that only one of those three things is trying to kill your father. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's, uh, almost you figured that's when the list would stop. Like, he crept in my room and, and attacked me, like, in some sort of fugue state. And, and you know, uh, I'm lucky the paper, like, it was paper mache. Like, it was just a prop. But no, 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 like, this is this is Doc Venture's life. Like, this is the Ventureverse, right? It's so it's the like... paper mache tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, it didn't get any better from yesterday. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like, you know, I guess patriciding is almost, like, you know, again, death is a casual thing here, uh, when you have a clone farm, I guess, like, uh, maybe he's a lot like, you know, uh, you know, um, Rick from Rick and Morty, where he's got, like, cloning protocols in case of his death, so that's why he can totally be a little bit more lax about it. Because he knows, like, in, like, nine months, he's going to, you know, essentially wake up in a new body, have to re-potty train himself, and, you know, <laughs> then he'll be good to go. In a few hours, you should regain the ability to speak. Right. <laughs> so let's take this moment. Having been through this epic journey, if we could just kind of throw it to our special guests here, Bradley Quizboy and the Bod Villain, to mm -hmm. kind of summarize what this episode brought to you about Brock Sampson and what we can take from it 
moving forward. Let's go ahead and uh, head over to Ask Bradley Quizboy to kick some knowledge. Well, I think this episode was really good in showing a more like fatherly side of Brock and even kind of showing where he could have gotten those instincts from, considering like Hunter was his uh, father figure and now mother figure and everything. And like just kind of showed him that like it's still okay to care in the OSI about like other people. And related to this, uh, for until we started discussing it, I thought that no women, no children meant like no connections. Instead of, like, who's not okay to kill. So I thought, like, whenever he he was talking to Brock about no women, no children, he meant, like, you cannot have any kids and you cannot have, like, any real relationships. So it's like the Jedi. Yeah, I was uh, thinking yeah. about that. Interesting. Well, and, <laughs> no, I completely under, like, now that you bring that up, I completely see where you could, you know, pull that interpretation. Um, I mean, I thought the man was one quarter RV. So <laughs> I was with you there. Don't feel bad. I 100% was with you before this. Well, like, all right. If uh, I, I, we know now that like uh, Doctor Dugong was a cuttlefish accident, but otherwise, like, I was imagining, like, thinking of how, like, you know, his origin story would have gone, and that, like, I'm glad they went there. They didn't go Otto Octavius on it. Yeah. Or not Otto Octavius, I'm sorry, uh, Otto Aquarius. There we go. Sorry, I was playing some Spider-Man PS4 today. Right. But, yeah, I think it was just, like, generally a very good episode to show, like, his more caring side towards adventures, because even with Molotov offering him more than once to go back to the spy life, he still decides to stick with adventures and, you know, go team venture and everything. Yeah, he could be back in the spy life again. But he chose not to. And one of the key details about this and the thing that I think we're really supposed to pull from this is just how good he is at what he does and why he chooses not to anymore. And, you know, I think, Vaudevillain, you might be able to offer some insight into this as well. Uh, yeah, you know, um, obviously this definitely touches a lot on the um, – the connection that Brock's kind of obviously developed over the years with the family. Um, you, you see a lot of the, um, I also like the, the, the comparative nature of Rusty thinking that, uh, well, if Brock's not going to go for it, like you can kind of see their buddy relationship starting to form a little bit. Uh, the competitiveness between them. I mean, you're always obviously seeing the body guy, bodyguard side of it and everything, but I kind of also like seeing the buddy relationship side to them. And I feel like it sort of begins to touch on that a little bit here. Um, just, it's nice to see that Brock actually, uh, like, when things start to kind of go sideways a little bit in terms of, like, Orb and things like that, where you're kind of like, why necessarily is this guy still attached to this family? And, like, uh, certain organizations discredit Rusty's um, merit and worthiness and things like that over the time. So it's just really nice to kind of get something where you kind of... Uh, get the family aspect um, and kind of see that there's, there's a relationship beyond um, uh, the OSI getting assignments and, you know, just, all right, you're here for now and that's your assignment. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a family bond there, um, which we're, we're, season two really starts to kind of get into nice between that one and then I've always loved, um, probably cover it. Go. Sorry. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's just something that they also end up covering a little bit with, um, I've always loved the beginning of uh, to an episode right near with uh, Love Behest, uh, just the fact that they're all dressed up as a family. Um, Love Bites. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the, 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 uh, the Rocky Horror uh, family costume that gets ruined. I just love those little... <laughs> By the bat. By the bat. Those little just touches early on that we get here at the beginning of season two where you really see them more as a full family unit as opposed to just this... Uh, grouping of people that kind of got shoved together. Well, and we spoke a little bit earlier about mother figures. Brock is the closest thing to a mother figure they have. Yeah, I mean, you can see it in their, their, like we were talking about, the struggle that they have with every single woman that comes into their life. They're either trying to figure out if, uh, is that mommy or am I going to get on that? There's really no in-between with these boys. I mean, essentially every woman that does come into their life it is... Uh, from uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch in that um, first time that they all meet together in the car and she's teaching him to drive and all that, and it's like, oh, are you our mommy? And they, they just absolutely gravitate to all women in their lives in one regard or the other, and it's there, there's almost I no I love exception. the way you say all like it's not four. True. <laughs> True. True. Well, um, I mean, again, the, the ventureverse is a little sparse on... Um, matronly figures. Um, like, the fact you know, that he pulls the, uh, the, the, the male woman right off the bat, it's literally any woman that gravitates into their field is immediately put into either one, either you might be my mommy or hey. hey. <laughs> well, and let's be honest, uh, I think we were talking about this earlier too. There are only four or potentially five functioning couples in the Ventureverse that we've encountered so far. There's Dr. And Mrs. the Monarch and the Monarch. There's Doc and Brock. There's Dr. Z and Mrs. Dr. Z. We've got, uh, and we briefly touched on the Alchemist and Shorely, um, and uh, whether or not we can count that as such, uh, because, you know, anytime you've got a mind wipe in order to have a functioning relationship, I mean, it's very R2-D2-C3PO. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that, and then you've got Pete White and Billy Quizboy. Right. And again, much like, you know, the mind wipe thing, like that relationship is only solid as long as Quizboy doesn't remember what happened. So uh, we, we say functioning, but there are some caveats to that. And yeah. the relationship that Brock has with this family is a wholesome functioning one, even though there's a whole lot of death and weirdness. Hmm. Yeah. It's the, the, the nice type bond of the venture family. Now, one of the things that was most interesting about this episode and why I thought it was such a great pole beast is that we get so much detail about Brock's history in these little snippets. And we get to see how he goes from essentially corn-fed farm boy with an accidental murder to being, you know, everyone's favorite Swedish murder machine who is also kind of like bodyguard, part mom, part dad figure to the Venture Brothers. So, you know, how is it that we're able to kind of put the tight wrap on this episode? The best part about this episode, Assassin Annie 911, in reference to Brock Sampson, is that it shows us his past as well as where he's firmly rooted in the present and where he might be going in the future. Um, you get his training, you get his home life, 
you get his espionage life and how that moral murkiness um, is going to transform him, you know, later on and uh, put him on quite the journey. You're absolutely right, Beast. And, you know, I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to explore this together. And I would like to just take a moment right now to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We are so grateful that you have. And I encourage you to go ahead and send us an email, hit us up on Twitter. We love your feedback and we love your ideas. And I'd like to thank our special guests, Bradley Quizboy and the VOD villain for joining us tonight for our second episode in our Brock Block. Brock Block. I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to uh, Brock Block anyone. So <laughs> next week, we actually have a double episode. So if you thought this episode was extreme in its detail, depth, and diversion, you are going to love next week's episode when we explore the family that slays together. And so on behalf of all of us here at Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast, I'd like to thank you all for joining us and wish you all a good night. And wherever you may be, go Team Venture! Conjectural Technologies Podcast is hosted, produced, and researched by me, Beast Lamode, Professor Brock Savage, and Vaude Villain. Edited by Beast Lamode and Vaude Villain. Intro music produced by Professor Brock Savage. Email us at conjecturaltechpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at conjecttech underscore pod and go team venture.